This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you Under the Yellow Tape. Under the Yellow Tape podcast is brought to you in part this week by Highlands Forensic Investigations and Consulting. Let us be your guide from crime scene to courtroom. Also brought to you by CRG Plans. CRG, Critical Response Group, making our world safer each day. If you're a parent with school-age children from kindergarten to university, take a look at CRG Plans and see how they're making the world safer for you, your family, your children, in your community. That's crgplans.com. Now let's get to it. Hey everyone, welcome back to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm your host, Howie Ryan. Today, we're going to go back to a continuation in a series that we're doing, which we call A Conversation with an American Hero. And I'm very excited about this one because this is a gentleman that I am honored to call my friend. And his story is absolutely amazing. It's heartbreaking, heart-wrenching, but uh, you can't help but kind of let your chest puff out with a little pride when you hear how he handled himself and held his ground at a time in his life as a young man where he was faced with a tremendous amount of adversity. His name is Ken Krause, and we're going to begin his story talking about his time as a United States Marine. Uh, He was assigned to embassy duty in Iran at the U.S. Embassy in 1979, and he is a gentleman from Plainfield, New Jersey, originally joined the, signed up for the Marine Corps early on a, uh, um, I guess what they call it, a deferred, uh, enlistment plan. He signed up young and he had to wait it out. And then he, when he, when he was old enough, he, he went right in and, uh, we're going to talk to him a little bit and we're going to go through his story in his words. He's going to tell you, but I'm going to give you a brief synopsis of what you're going to hear through this, uh, which is going to, you're not going to want to turn this off when he starts telling you the story. But in Iran, back in the late seventies, there was, you know, obviously made famous by the movie Argo and everything else for the younger people out there. And for the people that experienced it during the time, obviously the U S embassy and, uh, 
members and employees of the United States government working at the embassy were ultimately taken hostage for over 400 days. What a lot of people forget is just prior to that, there was a first attempt at uh, taking over the embassy. And they weren't very far apart. This has been a part of the world that has been basically in turmoil and trouble and just as pretty much a disaster for as long as we can all remember going back in history. And the reason I really want to do this one today is Iranian, Iran is back in, in our, in our, not on our sites, but in our focus, in our, in our U S media, you know, we have uh, current administration is, is willing to sit down with them and talk and maybe get back into a deal with them. Uh, the president now, president Biden was, you know, the vice president two administrations ago when, when we gave them billions and billions of dollars. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny how Iran always just circles back. It just keeps coming around. Well, this goes back to the seventies and this story, um, has been well documented. It's, it's out there, but, uh, it hasn't been told in quite a while. And a lot of you have never heard it, I guarantee. So Ken Krause was a, uh, U.S. Marine Sergeant signed on embassy duty. And on February 14th of 1979, at approximately 9.45 a.m. on local time in Tehran, the embassy was attacked and held by uh, Fedayeen militants in what later became known as the Valentine's Day Open House. In doing so, Ken Krause was shot he was injured and he was ultimately kidnapped. And I want to kind of go through a little bit of what happened to him. He was 22 years old when he was sent to Tehran in February. The Iranian revolution began and the Shah was overthrown. That's when the embassy came under attack. Now, 19 Marine guards were on duty at that embassy, as, as the records show. They were armed really only with pistols and shotguns at the time. Um, the embassy staff had to go on some sort of lockdown as the attack took place and they locked themselves in a vault and started to do their proper protocols, I guess, which is destroying sensitive documents. What ended up happening next is, is something we actually saw later in Benghazi. The militants threatened to set fire and kill everyone. But in that day there was a, the U S ambassador there was ambassador Sullivan. He ordered the surrender of the embassy. As you can imagine, that probably didn't sit too well with the U.S. Marines who don't do that. That's just not in their makeup. Marines don't surrender. They'd probably rather stand and fight it out and die if they had to for their country. But in that particular scenario, the ambassador is the boss and that's what he, um, that's what he did. He chose to surrender. Sergeant Krauss and two other Marines ended up in the embassy cafeteria with, with 18 civilians. The militants approached. Krauss uh, caught, was able to catch some of them by surprise and pointed a gun at them. And he and his fellow Marines actually negotiated to let the civilians go peacefully. The Marines were taken hostage or taken captive. The Marines destroyed most of the weapons they had there to keep from falling into the hands of the militants, um, but they stormed in and captured the Marines. In the midst of this, one of them fired a shotgun at Krauss. He was struck in the abdomen and the chest, and he was injured. In his subsequent capture, he was interrogated. 
He had been wounded in the chest and the eyes by the original shotgun pellets. And he, once he was taken captive, uh, the interrogation began. When he refused to give them any information about his, about his work there or about the embassy, he was repeatedly punched about the face, um, head, stomach, ribs, beaten with a rifle. He was on the ground. They placed a shotgun near his head and fired again. Instead of being struck, they had moved the shotgun to the side, but the projectiles ricocheted off the floor. And some of them struck him in the face and the neck and again in the chest and the left arm. So he'd been wounded twice now and repeatedly beaten. They took him and gave him some sort of medical attention. They said it was to a hospital. Um, We're going to hear him explain that. He was blindfolded and continued in the transport to be slapped about the face and the head. For the next two days and nights, he was kept blindfolded and handcuffed in a military compound. They gave him a blanket, a cup of tea, and a piece of bread. He found his next home, which would be the Islamic Revolutionary Prison, where he was kept in a small cell with about 25 other prisoners, none of whom were Americans. They continuously interrogated him and tried to get him to sign various anti-U.S. pro-Iran documents. Sergeant Krauss never gave in to his captors' requests and was beaten again about the head with a rifle for his, what they call stubbornness, what we may call his desire to uphold his oath to his country. On one occasion, the rifle barrel was put into his mouth and the trigger pulled, only at which time he found out it was not loaded. It was a terror torture technique that had been repeated. They urinated on him, spit upon him, and on one occasion, they placed him on a table, held his legs flat, and beat his legs and the bottom of his feet until the numb and the pain in his abdomen and spine became so great that he ultimately lost consciousness. There was a subsequent negotiation uh, days and weeks later where Sergeant Krauss was ultimately released to the U.S., back at the U.S. Embassy, uh, and flown to Ramstein Air Force Base, given medical treatment, and ultimately brought home. During his time there, and the violent beating and torture that he encountered, I want to begin this podcast by reminding you that he never gave in. He never gave in to them. He never told them anything. You're going to hear in his words how he figured he was half dead from the gunshot wounds anyways. And once you give them the information, once you break, you are of no value. And that's when they would finish you. So he held on to his life by believing that and believing in his values as a United States Marine and the oath that he took. I had a chance to meet him. And I I said in the beginning here that I am honored to call him my friend. In his post-military career, Ken Krauss went on to work for the Department of Energy in the nuclear transport capacity. He then went on to a uh, 20, I believe a 21 year career with the Roswell, Georgia Police Department as a detective and a crime scene investigator. It was while he was attending the 10-week resident course at the National Forensic Academy at the University of Tennessee is where I had the good fortune and the honor to meet him. We were teaching a class down there. He was in the class. And during several of the breaks, we just started talking about work and this and that. And this, this story came up. And I was... It's not very often that I sit there just completely dumbfounded listening to this. This, And he didn't really tell us that much of an in-depth version. But, uh, you know, I can remember from being a child and listening to the 
the stories in Iran and the, uh, the, the subsequent hostage in the 400 and some odd days that I couldn't believe I was sitting across from somebody that actually lived it, experienced it and was punished for being there. So it's, it's a fantastic to get to know him. You're going to love his story. He is a person that served his country in the military. And one of the things we love about this, this bit where we talk about two American heroes is after he got out, he went on and did something else. And the one thing I think that defines the life of Ken Krause is public service. Each job that he had, he served the American people, whether it be the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Energy or, or the people of Roswell, Georgia. He served the people in his entire professional career, and that, that deserves uh, a, a, great, a, a debt of gratitude we can never, ever repay. Um, so as we go through this, just uh, I'm going to ask him some questions, and we're going to talk about it. We're just going to talk, and he's very open about it, and it's just such an honor to have him here. And um, I hope you enjoy listening to him and you feel the same sense of pride that I have in being an American, uh, and, and you feel that pride swell when, when you hear him tell the story. So uh, without further ado, I would like to introduce you to my friend, Ken Krause. Hey, Ken, uh, thanks for being here with us on Under the Yellow Tape, man. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule and whatnot to, uh, to hang out and talk with us. So thanks for being here. Hey, Howie, how are you, sir? I'm doing good, man. Doing good. Hey, it's my pleasure, privilege, and honor to be here to talk to you. I wish it was uh, person to person. I know, but you're down south. I'm up north. But the important thing is we're both pulling on a little glass of bourbon right now. And uh, we're going to talk about some one of the coolest stories that uh, I have had the honor of hearing. And it was from you a few years back. And it was pretty amazing. So in the intro, I, I you know I explained to everybody that uh, you, know, you were a young man that did a uh, like a deferred enlistment into the Marine Corps. Take me back to when you were 17, man. When you, what, 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 what was it about that time and, and your desire to serve? Okay, let me add in something first. You know, that, what's ahead. another little important uh, trivia matter between us two is that we're both New Jersey guys, retired cops, still healthy, happy, and uh, fairly sane. So <laughs> kudos, to you. kudos, brother, for uh, the 20 plus years you put on the force. I know what it's like. I appreciate it, man. I like how you said fairly sane. We're both fairly sane. I'll take, I'll, ta I'll take fairly. <laughs> yeah, I hear, yeah. hey, you know, if I'm perfectly sane, then they're going to take my disab uh, disability away. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's right, right? I hear you, man. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Well, let me see, man. Nine, uh, nine, 17 years old. My God, bro, you're really digging into my head. Yeah. It's, that got to be shit. 19. And let me see. It's going to put me at 1975. Nice. And I just graduated uh, Valley Forge Military Academy in uh, Wayne, Pennsylvania. Very prestigious uh, uh, military academy in the country. And I was there on a scholarship. And after we graduated, it was 1974. Uh, I remember the uh, economy being really hit and trashed hard. It was uh, the, Yom the Yom Kippur War, 1973, October 73. Uh, the combined Arabs jumped on Israel and... Um, Long story short, the United States supported Israel in that, and people don't know how close we came to nuclear war and just how, how intrepid that times were. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so uh, what had happened, the Arabs had turned off the oil valve. OPEC closed the oil valve in the United States, and it just crushed us. There was no jobs anywhere. They're laying off uh, 
airline pilots and you know, so you're graduated school and you know you're looking to get out there and, and you know, get ahead somewhere and so i had applied to annapolis because my dad's and um, everybody in my family is a, a, a military from world war ii korea vietnam and uh, we had applied uh, to annapolis for me and had gotten a uh the uh, congressional appointment, but I failed the uh, uh, physical examination because of a heart murmur. And uh, at the time, I don't know how they, their standards have changed, but anyway, that was a heartbreak for the family. And yeah. so I was just looking at, you know, uh, what's the next uh, viable option here, you know, for you know a kid to get somewhere and get some experience in education. You know, we're applying to colleges, but at the time, we're just waiting around, waiting around. And so anyway, it's. Uh, I just took a trip one t- down to the AFE station, the Armed Forces uh, Enlistment Center, and walked in around lunchtime, and all the officers were uh, together, uh, were vacant for the afternoon. They had gone out to lunch, except for the, for the Marine recruiter. And anyway, so, you know, he comes out in his blues, his, char- his Charlie blues and tans, and uh, introduced himself. So anyway, we sat down, had a long talk, and, you know, I just, I think he brought me into the idea of what, you know, tradition is going to be like, what you really want to do, and, you know, give me the different keys to your mission in life, short-term, long-term, et cetera, et cetera. And at this time, Vietnam was still going on. It had not, Saigon had not fallen. I think Saigon fell in April of 75. So Saigon, I mean, uh, Vietnam was still going, but they were pulling, they've been pulling troops out since 72, 73. They're, you know, downsizing and pulling them out. They're not sending more troops in. So I thought it was a good time to say, hey, let's go in and, you know, check it out. We're not going to go to a, you know, unstable uh, war uh, area in the world that nobody likes or anything. So, you know, that's why I went down the AFI station. Anyway, ah, I just talking to a couple of buddies. And uh, when I came back in, um, they had talked me into going into the into the service of my choice where I could get a contract, uh, an absolute contract. You know, of what your MOS, military occupational service, what your job uh, description was going to be, and I, you know, wasn't going to be painting rocks or you know, being a washing tanks or anything like that. Right. So uh, when I took my uh, ASVAB scores, it was they were off the charts, and they said, you know, uh, either you're just a brilliant motherfucker or uh, you know how to take tests. <laughs> and uh, for the most you said, part, you said both, uh, right? Yeah, he says, or you had the. There's no way you could have the uh, the answer key. I said, no, I just had to read in the questions and you know take tests. Yeah. So. Uh, my qualitative analysis there, when they looked at it, said you can be just about any freaking thing you want. You know what I mean? So actually, when the uh, the uh, Marine Corps gave me the recruiter gave me a contract E three because of my ROTC and my background at Valley Forge Military Academy, I was already going in as an E three instead of an E E one enlisted three, which would have been a lance corporal. I said, yeah, shit, yo, show me the money, and they gave me a, a contract to go guaranteed I get, get through boot camp. And make meet all the requirements that I would go into air traffic control. I said, "Oh yeah, shit, yeah, air traffic com- combat air traffic control is what they called it." So right. anyway, uh, off to boot camp I, I went, and uh, I went out to San Diego. Um, I was told to uh, that I was enlightened by my friends that were in the service to uh, try to get to go to San- Marine Corps Recruit Depot (MCRD) San Diego rather than Paris Island because it's already going to be rough enough, tough enough, and crazy insane enough on you already. You don't need the heat and the swamp and every other damn thing. And I right. said, okay, fine. And so I asked, and the recruiter asked me, I said, yeah, uh, we do get a, a certain amount of uh, uh, requirements on, on allotments to actually go to uh, San Diego if you want. And I said, send me to San Diego, sunny California. It's going to be you know, just as tough there, but 
I don't have sand fleas and everything else, you know, eating me alive at <laughs> Paris yeah. Island. Yeah, uh, sure. Remember I said that because the funny thing is uh, I went to boot camp and uh, I went through and uh, made squad sergeant right away and a leadership abilities and, and whatnot. I just was a, you know, a little Napoleonic uh, motherfucker that would get in your face and tell you how to get shit done. <laughs> and, and I learned, you know, teamwork. I mean, that was automatic. Everything was teamwork and, uh, at the military academy, too, you know. You can stand out in certain areas, you know, on the wrestling team and be undefeated, and and your t- and your team still gets the shit kicked out of it. But you know, you just can't walk around like a peacock and uh, keep your head sure. high with you know without keeping your other brothers and uh, um, you know uh, motivated is what it was. A good leader knows how to motivate. Yeah. Well, I was to air traffic control school, and uh, I went to uh, Memphis, Millington, Texas, and uh, Tennessee. And uh, guess guess what my first duty station was. Marine Corps Air Station, Beaufort, South Carolina, right, right across back. the river from Paris Island. Right back there anyways. Right? You couldn't get <laughs> away from it. It was, yeah, was going to catch you one way or another. No shit, man. You know, I said, well, at least now it's, I got a little bit of freedom and, uh, you know, you're paying me a little bit better for it. So uh, basically being an air traffic controller, we just controlled. Uh, we had a, several F-4 uh, Phantom squadrons there. And uh, remember, remember now, this is we are still NATO. Right. right. This is where yeah. Warsaw Pact, you know, Russia wasn't a friendly <laughs> Russia they are today. This is Warsaw Pact. The Berlin hasn't fallen. We're still talking about the Iron Curtain for yeah. those people that remember back, you know. Sure. And we were still nose to nose with the, with the Soviets, you know, uh, at the border over there, you know, Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin. And yeah. um, so it's no bullshit, man. I mean, they. How, they how do you go? How do you go from air traffic controller to embassy duty in the sandbox? You get bored to tears and you master everything in your um, MOS uh, field that you can. Control tower operator, uh, ship supervisor, uh, uh, RATC control, a root traffic control, RATC. Because you got a difference of bringing them in and IFR or bringing them in, uh, um, uh, bring the birds in. Because what we have to do is we got to take them off and we got to bust through civilian airplanes in the airspace, you know, yeah. through the jet routes that are all the commercial airliners are going through. So we got little windows that open up, you know, to shoot them out into the warning areas, shoot them out into uh, uh, over over the water, and, and they do their air traffic. I mean, air uh, air combat uh, maneuvers, kind of mm-hmm. like uh, a forerunner to a Top Gun, a red flag in the uh, Navy and the and the um, Air Force. So after a while, I, I've got all the qualifications I need. Now it's just a matter because of my rank, I'm gonna be sitting around with thumb and butt, and <laughs> everything is pretty much the same. Where you take them off, you get a SID standard instrument departure, off they go, and then you wait for them to call back in and you bring them in, kind of like just shuffling cards, you know, uh, and just to make sure you don't put two of them together. You know? Right. So, uh, and you're sitting there now, you, you put in three years, let me see, 75, about 77, you put a couple of years in there and you're bored to tears. There is nothing going on in Buford. I mean, it was, if you're going to give the planet an enema, that would be one of the, you know, first spots you look at. And <laughs> so, now you, did you, um, when you, uh, so, so let's say embassy duty comes up as an option. I mean, is it, well, it general it, or you have to, you have to request it embassy right. duty and the drill instructor field. Okay. If you're going to stay in the military, you plan to stay in the military. Those two are the top of the line uh, areas that you want to try to get into and you have to vie for them. You just don't reenlist and get it. You don't get there's nothing, you know, there's not enough ass you can kiss. And I don't care how many people, you know, it's a uh, very competitive, um, uh, way to get through that those schools you put in for them you and you have to get a lot of uh background recommendations and the higher the recommendations with colonels or generals or whatever 
And I would guess I was kind of lucky that way because most of my pilots were uh, captains or above. And I used to know colonels uh, by their uh, first name, a general by his first name, and I would caddy for him out on the golf course. So, uh, you know, when they make the phone calls, it don't matter who makes the phone calls, that just gets you the opportunity to, uh, to write up for it. And now you have to apply in the application process. So anyway, um, it's, uh, I guess, probably one out of seven that apply, make it, or you get the application. And then you, uh, and then how does it work on where you're going? I mean, listen, you could have gotten Paris, but, or London. Oh, absolutely. Well, gotta, right away. What, happened, what you do is that we were, we were the last class in 1977, the beginning of 78 to, uh, graduate Henderson hall headquarters, Marine Corps. After that, they, they, they started the embassy duty, the embassy. It's called the, uh, MSG Marine security, Marine security guard battalion. Okay. That's literally the battalion, the unit that you work for. And, Although you're run by the uh, state, the State Department, okay, um, uh, operationally, they're your boss. Administratively, the Marine Corps takes care of beans, bullets, band-aids, and, and paychecks and all that. Other than that, you work for the ambassador, just like you work for, you know, um, you would work for the president. Sure. Anyway, so you go to you go to school and learn everything you need to learn about uh, operating security, um, spies, counter espionage. That's really what all the embassies are about, you know. And if anybody says anything different, they're full of shit. Okay. Right. There's more ABC, uh, XYZ, uh, ABC, X, you couldn't imagine how many letters over over there. DIA, FBI, NSA, NRO. I mean, there's, you need a scorecard to figure out who the fuck is who. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but um, your job is just to make sure that, you know, for the most part, um, interior security is make sure, you know, none of our people are doing things wrong or sloppy or making mistakes. But also, you know, besides that, you're protecting the outside, you know, from threats and, and trying to get in. You know, I guess similar to working at the White House or, you know, CIA headquarters in Langley. You know, you got threats from both, you know, in, interior and exterior. So when you were told, when you were finally told you're going to the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, was that like, well, a, kick, was that like a kick in the balls or what? Well, no, let me, let, <laughs> let me tell you how I put myself in harm's way with that one. Well, we, we, depending on how many graduate the academy class, we started with 120, we graduated about 40, okay? And you sign up for a 30-month tour. And MSMG, the MSG battalion, you'll have companies, like A company is Europe, B company is the Middle East, C company is Africa, and you know, they take those in there. So um, basically, you sign up for 30 months. 15 months of it is usually spent at a hardship post which is designated by the uh, State Department. Hardship post meaning somewhere it's out in the middle of Timbuktu. That's uh, a really bad economy. They got people shooting at each other, you know, like Lebanon. You know, in the 70s, Lebanon was always a hardship post. Right. So you get a hardship post for 30 months, and then depending on your uh, proficiencies and your uh, uh, behavior reports, et cetera, your conduct and proficiencies uh, you would, and recommendations, you could put in for a luxury post. A luxury posts are like Rome, Paris, like you said, Stockholm. It seems like everybody wants to go to Stockholm and find a blonde for a wife. You know what I mean? I said, no, <laughs> I want to go to Canberra, Australia. So I heard crazy things about the Australians and uh, their background, their history, and their women. So, I mean, it was all back when you're 20, 22 years old, you're you know, all driven by you know, a certain yeah. amount of, you know. Yeah, you're uh, looking you around know. for other things. Exactly. But anyway, um, I, I graduated very high in my class. I think I was like fifth. In, in all the class of the 40, and I got fifth pick. And you get a pick of what's there, um, what's available, and you know who's rotating out. And my pick was Cyprus, Nicosia, Cyprus. 
little, uh, little Greek island in the southeast uh, Mediterranean, just south of Turkey and uh, next to Israel. That would have been uh, nice. A lot of history there, a lot of biblical, you know, uh, things to look for. So, and although it was, it was measured as a or designated as a uh, uh, hardship post, it's only because there's a, there was a green line. The Turks had uh, gotten into a pissing contest with the Greeks, and they invaded. The Turks invaded and, and, and whacked the shit out the Greeks um, in, in about a two-week you know, semi-war. And then they just stayed. And that happened in 1974. They just stayed there. So the UN went in there. And, and like anything UN, you got the uh, Canadian, they call them the CanCon, Canadian uh, contingent, DanCon, Danish, British, BritCon. At different points along that green line, they're supposed to keep the Greeks and Turks away from each other. You know, so because of the, the, the UN troops that were there, it was a hardship post. I said, no, man, this place was gorgeous. Pretty girls, nobody fighting and killing each other. We used to go down to uh, Akrapiri and, uh, and Episcopi uh, Sovereign Air Base, train with the SAS and some other guys. And uh, it was, it, there was no threat whatsoever. It was great. I, I could have spent all 30 months there. Yeah. Anyway, in the meantime, uh, late in 78, the Shah's bullshit starts uh, breaking up over in, in Tehran, Iran. And um, you got a lot of people. I mean, it's, it's getting way out of hand over there. People getting kidnapped and, and murdered, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the State Department uh, was allowing Americans um, to uh, come back on the embassy or for, uh, go, go through the embassy to get the hell out of there. They're, shut, they're, they're shutting down the Korsky helicopter. You remember Ross Perot? He had the company EDS that was there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Data systems. And, uh, you know, they captured his uh, CFO and, and uh, chief executive officer. And, you know, I'll, anyway, they, uh, fast forward, that was a book that was on by Wings of Eagles that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so um, they, they uh, requested, they put it out to uh, different posts to, uh, you know, request additional, you know, uh, support troops, Marines. So I'm looking at it and I'm saying, hey, shit, yeah, you know, I'm supposed to go 90 days. And I, and it was supposed to be TAD, temporary uh, additional duty. Well, TAD to us is traveling around drunk. So, I mean, I fuck it. Yeah. Here's a chance to go back. People don't realize um, they pronounce it either Iran or Iran. Four right. letters depends where you want to put this, uh, the uh, symbolism on it and the accent. Yeah. But anyway, you really talk about ancient Persia, the sure. Persians, you know, back from, uh, you know, biblical Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, you know, all that that plays into there. They're all Persians. You know, and you're talking about Xerxes, Darius, you know, all these guys. You know, an ancient man, and like twice the size of Texas. So, and even though they're Muslims and, and predominantly Shiite, they are not Arabs. Do not call them Arabs. They take offense to it. Yeah. They are Persians. And that's just the way that is. I said, okay, fuck, I'll figure that shit out when I get there, you know? <laughs> um, well, so I put in for it, and I, I went in and talked to the gunny and talked to the lieutenant that was there. He says, yeah, we got, uh, we, we, can, we can put in, we can send one. Rome sent one, Madrid sent two. So you got another dozen Marines being handpicked coming from uh, what they call the fat embassies that didn't have a threat level that much. And uh, off we went to, uh, that's how I got around. I thought it was, uh, yeah, let's go over there for 90 days and see ancient Persia, see history, see that, you know, get shot up, beat up, fucked up, locked up. Yeah, that sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you, um, when you first got there, did you get to see any of the place or were you pretty much on lockdown in the oh, yeah. They didn't brief us that well back then, because remember, that's 40 freaking years ago. And uh, I fly in a nice suit and tie, you know, looking like the uh, uh, consequent, consequential type of uh, uh, American, you know, business yeah. person or something like that. We Mr. landed at Metterbot Airport, and uh, you walk through security and shit like that. And I had a black passport at the time. Uh, red is for diplomats. You don't even talk or look at them. They just walk through 
and buck naked. Black mm-hmm. is official. They might want to talk to you or something, but they don't ask you stupid questions. If you got a blue passport, um, then you know you're you're a tourist. They can do anything they want to you. Yeah, they bend over, grab ankles. But um, <laughs> so I walk through, and you know they give me a passport. They look at me, and they say, "Yeah, fine." Because at that time they were wondering who's coming into Iran. Fuck, everybody's trying to get the fuck out of the place. You yeah. know. And I get in there and I see that uh, the, the regular F- uh, Farsi police, you know, cops at the, at the airport, you know, heavily armed. But then uh, there's a lot of military in there, military police in there. And uh, it looked like the military police was actually supporting uh, the, the regular police, you know, kind of like a National Guard thing. And right. it wasn't like a regular airport. It was very, I remember it being very quiet and uh, not people walking around. You know, of course, there's no cell phones or anything, but everybody's sitting around looking at each other like somebody just laid a fart, you know, in church or something. And <laughs> it was uh, so the next thing I know is that I get this this officer comes up and he says, uh, he says, uh, Sergeant Krauss. I say, yes, sir. And he said, I'm so and so from the from the embassy. Come at me. And he's in he's in uh, uh, jeans. Uh, yeah, jeans and, and a, like a polo shirt. And when we walk outside. He said, I said, how about my, uh, my luggage? He goes, don't worry, we'll get that later. Said, okay, not a problem. And uh, he walks outside and he hands me this, this uh, flak jacket. He says, here, put this on. And I'll put it back up. He says, evidently, you didn't get briefed on the, uh, on the security procedures here. I said, no. And I said, what do you mean? He said, the way you're dressed. And he handed me a flak jacket. He said, here, put this on. I said, what the fuck? And I said, okay, we walk outside. And here's an, an old M113. If you want to, you know, Google that and look at M113 mm-hmm. uh, track vehicle, that's what was outside. It's going, it's like an old half track, you know? Yeah. And I said, here, and they opened the hatch in the back. I said, you're shitting me. That's what they drove you in? That's what they drove me to the embassy in. You feel kind of fucking, you know, yeah, the armored Uber. <laughs> well, welcome to Iran. Exactly what it was. And that's what I, when you said, did you see it? That's when I first started to see stuff outside. And there's a portals, there's a little portals, glass portals that were there that you could look through and, and you could see the burnt cars. And it looked just like downtown uh, Baghdad, you know, in, in the modern days now that you're looking at. Bombed out this, bombed out that, spray painting, bodies still laying places. Like, oh, look at that. That's a body laying in that car there. He said, yeah, you noticed that? Oh, mm-hmm. nobody's going to come to get them. Nobody wants to know who they are. I said, yeah. holy shit. This fucking place just got fucking real. And off we went to uh, the embassy. We drove up to the gate and they did the, you know, the ID check and uh, he gave his credentials and they waved us in. And, and there I was, you know, my first night. So welcome aboard. From that point, though, were you pretty much in the embassy the whole time? or uh, Hardly ever left the embassy. Once yeah. we got once we, we went with the gunny, we got us assigned our gear and I never saw my suit again. I don't know what the fuck happened to it. You know, wow. we were at uh, BDUs, you know, battle dress uniforms, what mm-hmm. you guys call, you know, what you're used to seeing the camouflage. Sure. And we wore a helmet every day. We were just, uh, we were in battle ready condition. And I said, shit, this is nothing like what they teach at our embassy. Our yeah. embassy over is, is totally different. And uh, it's, uh, it's still tight security, but nowhere near this. This is just like uh, downtown uh, Lebanon, Beirut, you know, where they get shot at every day. And uh, you see, an embassy is a, is a diplomatic security uh, type of mission. It's, right. it's there for diplomats and to get people along. It's not meant to be an Alamo. It never, you know, it never was back in the 60s and 70s. At least it wasn't built that way. In Tehran, it was been there, well, I don't know, for ever since we had the, we got the, the Shah was around 30, 40 years prior to that, World War II. Yeah. And it was a 27-acre compound. It was, it was beautiful. Size, but it, it's not defendable. There's no way you could defend that shit. You'd need... You'd need a uh, you need a company, uh, 120 men or something like that, 
to uh, to hold that place. And you have you were the low ground around it. I mean, there's high rise apartment complexes and office buildings. You didn't have the high ground. Right. And that comes later in the assault is that it plays into it big time. Let so, me ask you something. Um, yeah. What was the date that you went there? Do you remember the date you actually went in country there? Uh, let me see. December 14th. Okay. So you were. December 78th. So you were really only there two months before this thing just went sideways. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. All right. So take us to the morning of february 14th 1979 when you woke up i mean was there was it already hostile was there tension i mean what was the what was the setting that morning well it had been hostile the day after we got there you know that you know we had been there's drive-bys going by they shoot up the embassy wall or something we respond and of course it's supposed to be understood you know by both diplomatic people that it's american soil just like iran's anybody's embassy on in foreign soil in country is theirs okay for the for right. most part everything inside them walls everything else on the wall or outside the wall it, it belongs to the host country but we were getting drive-bys all the time uh idiots would drive by in uh in vehicles with molotov cocktails throw them over the wall some would bust and some they didn't even light i don't know what the idiot <laughs> you forgot to light this one fool <laughs> and so we you know we go out there and uh we'd have to have the eod guys some of the navy eod guys that were there uh because we figured hey you know just because they didn't like that that makes you think it's a uh a dud and then you go pick it up and it goes bang right. so they were learning they're learning their terrorist tricks and you know the russians were right there to help them out and you could count on that one sure and so anyway we were we, we were uh, there was demonstrations every freaking day and we have a we have a consulate building that was a, uh, a couple blocks away that we had a, it was so bad with security it was almost like a de- uh it was, it was a death warrant there we nicknamed it fort apache you couldn't defend it we had to put uh, steel wire, uh, steel bars, Constantina wire, and four rows of uh, sandbags and whatnot in front of it just for the drive-bys and the shootings. And they eventually wow. they shut it down, they said, because uh, the people were, we weren't getting enough people going through there uh, to get uh, consular visas and whatever they do at consulars over there to justify the, uh, the back and forth of, uh, you know, uh, moving the logistics of the Marines and everything else. So I guess the State Department ambassador said, fuck it, shut it down, man. You know, yeah, we'll get them yeah. in. We'll get them to come through this. You know, maybe that's what they wanted. I don't know. But we had—I can't remember a day. What's Christmas Eve? Christmas, all of it going through. That there's a huge soccer stadium uh, about a mile, mile and a half uh, away from the American Embassy there, and they would fill that stock soccer stadium as if it was you know the national championship for their of the world. And then you got to figure that that's holding but fifty, sixty thousand people at least, and not to mention yeah. that, but to add in the people that are in the streets. And they'd be uh, just like what you're, you know, watching today in Portland and Seattle, you know, walking mm-hmm. through the streets, tearing shit up and yeah. uh, you know, burning, looting and, and mayhem. So that's uh, that's what we got. But they would walk up and down uh, Jamshi Boulevard. Uh, it was a main street there. And a lot of embassies were uh, along that for the most part. And they'd go by and anything that was uh, American or pro-Western. They'd be burning and looting and, and fighting it. So we were always on alert for the most time. We got another one coming through this this weekend or, you know, it's coming through. And we just, you know, stand our, stand our post. And uh, Were you all always, when you were out um, on a post there, were you guys always locked, loaded, and ready to, ready to go? 24-7, absolutely. Locked and loaded. And uh, clear, to, clear to use deadly force. If they come over that wall and, and possess the threat, uh, uh, yeah, possess threat, uh, then you know you just uh, you, you take it, you, you take it down, 
you know, you're not going to get into the, uh, the chance rebuilding. You're not going to get a chance to wear, you know, a suicide vest and blow people up. Once you come over that wall, you're a fair fucking game. Yeah. You know? And not many ever did. I mean, I, I, there was only one or two that ever uh, came over and uh, there was never a problem with them. You know, we grabbed them, ran them down, cuffed them, you know, and, and then turned them over to Farsi police and said, get them the fuck out of here. Yeah. You know? but, well, that, mor- that morning of the 14th when you guys woke up, was there any intel that, like, look, the shit's going to be Yeah, well, the, 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 see, the show left on January 16th. He said, fuck it, I had enough. His right. country is falling apart and he just can't hold it. And you had all these different regimes that were not pro Khomeini, but they were anti Shah. So you got a bunch of gangs kind of like Chicago, all trying to, you know, none of them are uh, pro-cop, but they're all anti-whatever. And, you know, they were, they were at each other's face, and they were at each other's throat, especially the Fedayeen. The Fedayeen mm-hmm. were uh, a communist version, Russian-controlled ones. And they were the real fucking goddamn antagonists. You know, they instigators all the goddamn uh, crap all the time. And were they, they right were, out front? Uh, yeah. Once the, uh, once, once the Shah left on the 16th, we, we said, oh, shit, now what's going to happen? And I, well, it's, it's up to the, the big diplomat. They tried to get the, uh, the Bazigar, Bazigan uh, government in there. That failed. Um, what was his name? They, they assassinated him later. Uh, Abu Hassan Banisarar. They, they whacked him later. So they were just lopping these guys' heads off left, right. You got to remember, they were executing people with total immunity. You know? yeah. I mean, they, it was as if they were getting a goddamn concession on this shit. And anybody, now everybody used to work for the Shahs running for the hills. Well, I think it was February 2nd, don't quote me, but uh, here comes the Ayatollah, the Khomeini, the big Imam Ayatollah, who had been beaten in this and that and the other thing. Anyway, he's coming back for his revenge. So he goes back in the country and he's saying, okay, I'm back. And uh, everybody's going, you know, going crazy. And, um, you know, they think that, you know, the whole world's going to, you know, just, you know, fall over him. Well, he didn't realize there's a whole lot of... uh, uh, tribes and other other well, I guess say gangs or affiliates, um, whatever uh, that uh, now just don't want to give up their guns and weapons. They say, hey, 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 you know we were part of getting rid of the Shahs and we want to say so in this new you know regime. He said, no, it's going to be a theocracy. Uh, Allah is going to run it through me, and whatever I say is law. You don't like it? I'm going to fucking kill you. And he did. He slaughtered people wholesale, left, right, up, down. He put tanks in the red light district and just did, 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 shoot and kill. The, uh, anybody that was in the red light district, if you were either uh, a whore or uh, one of the clients, uh, they, they, they shot you and shot you up. It was crazy. And uh, anyway, so this was going on and on for uh, night and day, you know, 24-7. So we would be uh, uh, 12 hours on, 12 hours off. And uh, just when you were there, you were, you were watching what, you know, what was going on. And there was no Americans. It was hard. We, we had stripped the embassy down to... Uh, uh, skeleton crew, whatever needed to keep it going. Almost everybody was there was either uh, military, pro-military, or you know one of the intelligence people, and they were burning the shredding shit night and day. And when you see that going, the burn bags, we do a burn bag of uh, uh, um, uh, secret classified stuff, one or two a week. We were doing freaking a, do- a dozen a day. Okay, so wow. we knew, knew, we knew, they're saying. You knew it was coming. On the 13th, um, I was on a, uh, I was on a, a roving patrol and uh, that morning I got, uh, right before I went out onto uh, patrol, we went up to, to the uh, armory and there was a stuffed shirt there and he was not handing us out, uh, allowing the armorer to hand out M16s. We were getting shotguns. I said, what the fuck is this? Shotgun. I said, well, you know, well, you can get a shotgun if you're working interior patrol of the uh, embassy. 
inside shotgun because you didn't want to shoot the shit. You had to shoot, you know, you don't want the two, two, three going through every fucking wall and, you know, whatever in there. Then right. they probably, uh, depending on the post, that's what, that's what the weapon you carry, you know, necessarily. Anyway, so we're all getting shotguns. I said, no, no, I'm, I'm on, uh, you know, a Rover 2. And I said, no, no, this is what it's going to be. And, then, you know, and he said, just move it on, Marine. And I knew who he worked for. So if I wanted to piss and moan and groan, I knew we sent it up to uh, Mike Thomas, the regional security officer, RSO. And he says, well, this comes from higher up. He says, you guys are, you know. I said, this is fucking insane. And I went to the gunny that was in charge of the, uh, the detachment commander. And he says, so my hands are fucking tied. And we try to come up with a couple of ideas of what to do, you know, uh, why they're doing this. And we had to come up with another battle plan. Because, you know, the way you responded with one weapon is uh, totally different than, you know, with shotguns. Let me ask you this. When you, when you say a stuffed shirt, he, he's ambassador staff, civilian-ish, politician. What is he? Who? Uh, RSO? The guy who made this shotgun decision. I don't know who made the decision. That came from Washington. There's no doubt in my mind it came from Washington. So politicians, um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So they stripped us down to where we, you know, we, we're, we're, we're next to nut. We're denuded right now. We cannot engage anybody over, what, 50 yards with a shotgun? Are you out of your fucking mind? I don't right. even care if it's a slug, you know? Yeah. Anyway, so uh, he was a spook. He, uh, I'm, I'm sure he's CIA or DIA, one of the two. And uh, so we raised hell about that, but didn't do any good. So we went out on that post that morning, that night. There was a few shots fired, a few Molotovs thrown over the embassy wall. No big deal. I got off early that morning on the 14th. And the, uh, uh, it'd been a long night. Now you're talking February up in Northern Iran. You're in the Caucasus mountains up there, the Ellsberg and the Caucasus mountains. It's fucking cold up there. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's butt freezing fucking cold. And I got off and I went back to the caravans for my restaurant and I had breakfast that morning. I was talking with my friend. He's a uh, waiter. His name's Manachi. And I will never forget this for the rest of my freaking life, man. This is part of my post-traumatic stress is seeing him at night in my dreams. Anyway, so I was talking to him, and he has uh, two daughters that are really nice daughters that would show up. They'd help him work. He's a waiter in there. And uh, you know, one of them wanted to go to uh, be a uh, nurse, and uh, he, had, he had friends or family in Pennsylvania you know, where uh, I went to school just right up the road. Uh, it was uh, Bryn Mawr School of Nursing right up uh, from uh, the main line of Philly on Wayne sure. uh, where the Valley Forge Military Academy was. Anyway, we'd have a good talk, and we were really good friends. And he was uh, he taught me Farsi, and you know, I, I told him, look, when I get back to the United States, if I could do anything to help your daughter out, except marry her, of course. You know, uh, you know he laughs at that shit. You know what? And that's great. So uh, left the restaurant, and I'm going back to bed, and I just get back into the Marine House, and I'm just so damn tired. You, you've been there, Howie. Mm-hmm. Just get so tired, you just take your belt, your belt off, and maybe your shirt off, and you're still in your boots, your pants. You lay down on the couch, you lay down on the bed. You just want to pass the fuck out, you know, after sure. a long night. And anyway, so just shortly after that, I start hearing uh, small arms fire. I said, "What the fuck? That sounds awful close." You know, I mean, we've been hearing it for for weeks. But man, I said that motherfucker she's close. It's like right over the embassy wall. I can hear the crack on the radio, and they're coming over the wall. They're coming over the wall. And he said, they're, they're armed, they're armed. Request permission to fire. I said, fuck, that's, that's Gary Penniman. That's a, he's, a, he's post one right at the front. Mm-hmm. I said, my, and he just kept, I remember going over the radio. I grabbed the fucking radio. And, and next thing I hear, it goes, goes from small arms fire to rifle fire. And you know, the difference in that, the louder crack and how I said, holy shit. And then another post calls in. Uh, they're coming over the Roosevelt Gate. Now that's the far west gate. And mm-hmm. I said, holy fuck, they're coming in. He said, they're taking a gate. 
and we didn't hear anything more on the radio. They had taken, gotten hold of our radios, and the old radio, the Motorola pieces of shit bricks we had, you pressed down the push to talk, and if you could hold that, you got the line open. Anybody on that circuit couldn't hear shit, couldn't, couldn't talk back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, my response is, uh, told is, is go back to the same post I just got off of, which was back near the caravansary restaurant. So I put my flag jacket back on my helmet and go running across. As soon as I run out, I start, I, it, it, the place is just loaded full of uh, uh, machine gun fire now. And I look up and I got across this open field and I look up and there's, and I see that there's myriad of uh, shooters up on the uh, uh, verandas, the patios, the apartment complexes, shooting out windows and everything. And they're all way up higher than us. They're shooting down randomly. And they had the 30 calibers. Most were 30 caliber bullets. It was a G3, a JSA, uh, FNN. So it was, it was a long rival battle. I don't know where the fuck they got them, probably from the Iranian army. But that whole goddamn field was nothing but a killing field. You could see cars rocking back and forth to the parking lot, snippets of branches, you know, falling through. I said, holy shit, I can't get to the Chancery building. There's no way. And now I'm starting to hear Farsi talk, um, what the Persians speak Farsi, on the radio. So I said, fuck, now I know our communications is compromised. Uh, so I said, well, what a, I had another ring back next to me. And he says he's going to try to get back to the motor pool. And I said, okay, I'm going back to Caravance Rider, back to, to the last. Um, my last post who there was two Marines already there. And, um, you know, I hooked up with them and, uh, that part of the embassy is very important because it has an open gate that allows, uh, delivery trucks, food delivery and supply trucks into the area, the courtyard. And then there was another post where you have to come through, but you wouldn't, you're not allowed to come through, um, for other than, uh, means for, uh, dealing with your truck or stuff like that. If you, if you had other administrative or diplomatic, whatever, you went through um, other gates and other avenues. So we knew that this was an open, weak spot. And they're coming over the wall, and uh, we just got to talk to the other two sergeants, uh, uh, Sergeant uh, Hinojos and Sergeant Lochek. And I say, hey, man, we got to hold this this post right here. And in the little circle, that, uh, it's, it's a circular spot. you got the Caravansary restaurant, and you have the, uh, um, uh, the, the commissary that's there, like a little store. And you got the Filipinos. We call them FSLEs, Foreign Service Local Employees. And they're paid employees that come from all over other parts of the country. And the rich folks pay them to come over there and do the, uh, the odd jobs and menial task labor. So I said, well, get over there and clear it out. And, and, and we're going we're gonna, to uh, barricade ourselves in here and, and, uh, so we can control the field of fire. And we can uh, keep that, that gate fucking closed a lot. Next thing I know, uh, <clears throat> he's coming back with about 10 uh, people that were working in that. And I said, holy shit, I didn't think there was that many people working there or that morning shopping or whatever. So I do a head count when we're there and there's 22 of them. I call them Americans. They weren't all Americans. So if it gets out and somebody gets hurt by their feelings, you know, fuck them. I don't care. But there's, there's 22 that's accounted for in three of us. And, and, and they're non-combatants. They're, you know, half rise, like a third are women and the rest are men. And I'm saying, holy shit. So I'm trying to dial into post one. Post one is not, and let them know what my status is. <clears throat> I have no idea, uh, and uh, uh, who nobody's answering the phone. Radio's not working. You're on your own. Make a decision. That's when we started to hear a 50 cal open up. If you ever heard a 50 cal uh, within a thousand yards of it, you know it sounds like it's right next to you. They they had pulled up in a jeep and they had started busting open the uh, 
the shutters, the steel shutters and everything, when we shut down the Chancery Building, that's how they started getting into the, uh, the embassy itself. Blasted over a 50 cal and just punching holes in the goddamn thing. So I said, Jesus Christ, we didn't have a 50. Where the fuck did that come from? And uh, I said, man, and Jackie Neal just said, he says, uh, he says, uh, he says they're trying to get into the embassy, the Chancery Building. He says, when if they bust through the bullet do- uh, bulletproof, you know, uh, doors, he says, the, you know, they'll, it'll look like the Alamo. They'll just swarm in there. Yeah. He says, yeah. And he said, then we're next. And he goes, if they get through up there, they won't need to get through back here. What was your mindset at that point? Were you like, fuck it, we're just going to hold ground and, and fight it out? Or That's all we could do. Is I say, let's, let's try to be as least inconspicuous as possible and not, uh, and not draw fire. So they were actually in. There was there, and, and at this time, we didn't know who these people were. Some of them had dressed in, in ragtag uh, um, BDUs and, and you know, fatigues. Uh, others were dressed in civilian clothes. Some were dressed with uh, uh, white sheets and, and actually some uh, bandanas on their head, written in Farsi. I didn't know what the fuck that was. So it was, there was a there's a mixture of uh, of assault assaulters in there, but. Um, we didn't realize at the time I, I was making the assumption that they were um, on the property and were actually making um, uh, entry into the, into the chancery. At that time, let's see, we're talking about 830 in the morning. So now it's about 1030. And um, they had not gotten into the uh, chancery building, but they had brought the 50 cal up and they were shooting in and over on top of it. I didn't you know that. I couldn't see it. There was no line of fire for me to see that. But. Next thing I know is that uh, they blow out the they blow out the back steel dig, steel gate into the compound where we were, and I told the Marines and said, okay, they just breached the uh, the, the outer wall, and, and they don't know where we are. It's nice and quiet; they don't see anything. And in they come, and they they're they're, they're pooping and snooping. They get in, and a couple dozen of them go in and start raiding the commissary, and they're having a good time. They're taking everything that's there. I mean, they look just like <laughs> they look like BLM downtown Portland, man. And uh, <laughs> oh goddamn, you know. And, and, and but the few of them that were there, you could tell by the way they moved, the way they walked, the way they carried their weapon, they were former military or at least military trained. And I said, you know, watch those guys. So uh, they come over and they start to look at the restaurant and they start pulling on the doors, pushing the windows and things like that. And I guess they saw movement inside because uh, they realized that there was people in there and that they wanted to try to get through. So um, they were yelling in Farsi, and I, I didn't understand everything they said. I was asking Menache and another one. I said, what's he saying? They said, come on out with your hands up, you know, surrender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You will not be harmed, et cetera, et cetera. I said, hey, and, uh, I said we can send these people out there, but then we have to stay because we cannot allow them to get through this gate and overrun the back part of the embassy. Mm-hmm. We've got to buy time for everybody to get things done up there at the Chancery Building, et cetera, et cetera, and to get the uh, um, the ambassador and the Chargé d'Affaires to uh, you know a safe room. So my job is to buy time. Buying time, sending these people out there could be an instant death warrant, and I, I, I didn't know what to do at that point. Let me stop you for a second, because something you just said really kind of strikes me. You're like, all right, some of them could go out maybe, and we could get a, they could be released. If maybe they're not going to be harmed, maybe they are. But in the middle of all that shit, I mean, you have the presence of mind to say, we have to hold this. I mean, we have a, we have a, an obligation. We, our orders are to hold this. We got to give them time to destroy what they need to destroy, get them in safe rooms and just, you may end up getting killed, but you have the presence of mind and, and the balls to say, we're going to hold this as long as we can. Is that fair? That was my mission. Yeah. And I had no contrary orders to the, uh, to the difference of it. 
That's awesome. So knowing what your post orders were and how important that place was there, oh, that's my decision at the time. And yeah. the two Marines said, and then the other two Marines, you know, Jackie Nohos and uh, Henry Lochek, they agreed. And yeah. I said, that's, uh, but we couldn't feel good sending the Americans, uh, send all, Americans all the, all the non-combatants, you know, yeah. out there to who we were talking with or anything else. So um, I finally said, okay, tell them back in Farsi, here's what, here's what's not going to happen. There are no combatants. There's nothing in here, but ba da and, you know, back and forth, you know, I said, we know there's Marines in there. We know that you guys, you know, have this, that, and the other thing. And they, they wanted to get in there. I said, this is not a strategic place. It's a fucking restaurant, you asshole. I said, you know, what's the reasoning that you have to get in here at the point of a gun? I said, I can understand you getting over there, um, you know, in a chancery building, ambassador's house, whatever. Okay. But this year, there's nothing worth dying for. And you're trying to, you know, trying to play poker with this motherfucker. And now we're, we're getting to a point where we're all in hand. You know what I mean? If he calls, we're fucked. Yeah. So basically he did is that, you know, he started, he's sitting that around both sides of the, uh, of the uh, restaurant. They started trying doors and one of them busted, busted a window and put his hand through and, and started fuck with the lock. Well, that wasn't going to open it. But we, we had furniture and everything else. We piled in front of it, you know, but, uh, you know, he put his hand in there and I, and I don't know what provoked me. I just took the shotgun and blew his fucking hand off. I mean, I, I guess that was, you know, Start of the, uh, the the confrontation. I blew his hand off, and you know what was left of his hand was all splattered on the window. And he's laying on the ground, screaming everything. Yeah, uh, I call him. I, I'm going to refer to this guy as uh, the Frito Bandito, if you can think back, because yeah. he's a short, rotund little fucker. He's uh, got he's got a big, heavy mustache and and a kind of like a, a semi beard, and he looked just like the old Frito Bandito, except he didn't have a uh, Mexican sombrero, you yeah. know. And, yeah, and, yeah. and 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 he, he, the smacked ass had a had a light brown suit on, and he had bandolier of uh, cross bandoliers on him of uh, thirty caliber. That I I because it probably you know three oh eight that went to the uh, the, the the Belgian G uh, three. But he's yeah. holding a fucking Uzi. I said that's a nine millimeter weapon, dickhead. Good. I like to see you reload that one. So you know, just <laughs> under stress and under fear and things, and you know, you're terrorized and you're trying to. Uh, mentally uh trying to uh, think clear uh yeah you're trying to uh, mentally uh what's that uh, process it all well what's the best word i can say is that everything's going through your mind and you're trying to juggle it mentally you know yeah. and you're not doing a good job with it and so anyway he's he orders his guys to uh frito bandito he orders his guys to uh open up and there's about eight or ten of them and they all had automatic weapons and they just lit the side of that building up and it was as yeah. it was as goddamn chaotic and as dangerous as overpowering as you ever seen in any goddamn movie that Hollywood put out. And yeah. we just knew that. And now we had, we had all the people in the back, um, in a, like two, got two and three walls between them. And, the, uh, the women were put in the, uh, we opened up the, the freezer locker, put them in there and not closed the door, but kept it open. And, uh, so they were, they were safe. It was just out there in the, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, the cafeteria area and where you eat that were in danger. And we had to watch three sides to, uh, each one of us had a side. And of course, you know, when they opened up like that, we just had to hug the goddamn walls. And man, I'm telling you, that place looked like fucking Swiss cheese, Howie. And the noise, the goddamn noise, it deafens you. Okay. Yeah. We shot back and we always with the shotguns. We returned a little bit of fire just to, you know, keep their heads down, let them know that, you know, we're not just going to take it up the ass here. You know, but you're just shooting at us all day. So we returned fire and now we go, hey, you know, game on. I asked uh, Jack to go upstairs in, this, in a secondary level and I'll keep his head down, but look through the, the window upstairs where they had a, uh, what do you call it, like a, a ballroom or a service room, sports room that you could rent, you know, for the mm -hmm. restaurant. And uh, Stanley, I said, 
you go out in the back and they had a, a service entrance where I guess like guys like Menachi and stuff would come and go. And <clears throat> anyway, so we're, they're moving up and trying to get in. They get near the windows and doors. We shoot back. They shoot at us. And uh, we pick a two, we pick two or three of them off. I remember having to uh, unload my shotgun. It was a Remington 870P, the police cut version, you know, you're folding stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I seen one climbing up on this steel uh, uh, steam line, above ground steam lines. And, and they, they're helping each other up. And I said, well, I can't I see them, but I can't hit them from here. But when he climbs over what they had, these rat fences, and the rats wouldn't you know, use this to get into the buildings. He's climbing over his rat fence. I took a shot at him, and uh, it, it was a you know, three-inch slug. And, uh, you know, one, uh, one ounce slug and it hit him square and knocked him completely off that motherfucker. That's like my second or third kill for today. And now, um, I mean, I, I think that put them, took them down that they are not going to, uh, play anymore coming in that way. The whole time though, is that we don't hear anything on the radio. Keep trying to get through on the hard line to the ambassador post one. Um, that is still fuselage. You can hear, uh, you can hear the uh, shotguns versus um, automatic weapons, but you're yeah. hearing less and less shotguns. That's you mean often you mean off in the distance at other posts. Yeah, yeah. So I'm saying, you know, guys, you know, we're only carrying about two hundred rounds of shotgun in yeah. in our in our in our pocket. So I mean that's not gonna last all fucking day. No. And I said, so how much longer can we hold out? Well, they I looked at it and I I I I, I taken a uh, an inventory with uh, the other two sergeants and said, okay, how much how much weapon you know what's our weapon inventory look like? And how much longer can we stay here keeping these guys at bay? <clears throat> and you can't, you, you got to be care, very careful walking around in there because you know they got, I wouldn't call them snipers, but sharpshooters, you know, that even at that range, you're talking about a, I know, less than 100 yards. You know, yeah. if they see you in a window or something, they'd pop, they'd pop your gourd, you know, clean off. Right. Anyway, so everything you're doing is you're crawling on your el you know, elbows and knees back and forth to talk to each other or hand signals. And so we don't have a whole lot of ammo left. I mean, I think one, one or two more assaults. And you know, they're going to get in here, and then it's going to be hand-to-hand. Right. So, oh, yeah. So uh, it's just a miracle of God, as I'm asking, uh, telling you, Howie, you know, saying, you know, Lord, I'm in position here. These people's lives are in my hands. What the fuck do I do? Come on. Give me some goddamn information. Give me, give me op an open door. Don't just let me say I got to give up here. Because after you've been shooting the shit out of these guys and, and splatting a few of them, uh, you know they're not gonna, <laughs> they're not going to be over indulgence and uh, mercy yeah. when it comes to dishing it out to you or the people that you're supposed to be guarding. Sure. So you know that's my nightmare right there. You know, I'm an American fighting man. I, I serve as the forces that guard my country in our way of life. I'm willing to risk my life for them, but yeah. I'm not going to piss it away. Right. And I said if it was just us three Marines, it'd have been an easy call. You know, like yeah. Leonidas said. You know. Learn La Bay. Come fucking take them. And uh, <laughs> we would have put a price tag on them motherfuckers higher than you'd ever fucking imagine. But you can't do it when you have non-combatants and women in there. And, you know, that's, that's an anchor around your, your ankle. I said, God mm -hmm. damn. So I don't know where it got the inspiration, but I'm, I'm keeping it open. And the whole time you're talking about the adrenaline rush up and down, up and down for two hours after you just had, you just got off a 14 hours, 12 to 14 hour shift. So I'm telling you, you're getting a fucking a mental and emotional and physical drain like you wouldn't believe. So anyway, this guy you're, up, you're, you're up all night and now you're yeah. in a two hour firefight. Oh, wow. yeah. And uh, wondering what's going to happen to people that when you get, you know, whacked or killed or whatever. And thank God nobody was wounded because we had next to nothing except, you know, tablecloths or something to be used as medical supplies. 
mm-hmm. you know? And anyway, so um, I don't see this Frito Bandito anymore around here. And I see a shadow on the outside of these, uh, uh, of, the, uh, of the windows on the side. So I know somebody's moving out there. But the shades are down and drawn. I said, somebody's out there. And he's, whoever it is, is, what, is walking around. And he's on a side that we haven't busted the windows open yet and can't shoot through. And we don't want to open those windows, you know, because then we got to defend two sides at once. And now you're in a crossfire. So strategically, tactically, it's, that's not a good idea. But he walks around, climbs over some, some uh, trash bins and other things. And he walks around and I, and I see the shadow coming around. And I said, okay, motherfucker, uh, come around, come around, come around. And I'm stalking him on the other side of a, a glass wall that's opaque. You can't see through it. And when I said, oh, shit, we're coming to some now, the side where they've been shooting. And the window's open, and he walks around, and guess who the fuck it is? My Frito Bandito buddy. Boom, I stick my shotgun right on the windowsill right there, and it's like five feet away. And you could have heard his asshole fucking shut, slam shut. I'm telling you what, his eyeballs, his eyeballs got bigger than any shot glass I've ever seen. I said, don't move, don't move. I said, I know you speak English. I heard it out there. And I said, I said drop the Uzi, drop the weapon. So he drops his fucking weapon. That's what I really... I didn't even notice it, but I looked at the, uh, he was close enough. I looked at the bandit, the, uh, the weapon. So I said, how the fuck do you put a 30 caliber goddamn bandolier on when you got a fucking, but this is what goes through your mind. You know, that you, know, you off beat sometimes when you go, what the fuck? So I said, Ella, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. I said, but there's nothing in here that's worth dying for. I said, you've already lost a couple men. You're going to lose some more. I said, now we have non-combatants in here. I said, uh, non-Americans, other Foreign Service local employees. I said other other Iranians, and I said I said they don't need to, you know they've got nothing to do with this, and I you know well he didn't really have a say so in, in what for the most part who he was and what he was is just you know he's here and he wants to get he wants to get into the embassy on this side through that door. I said well that's not going to happen not while I'm still breathing. Okay that that can't happen. You can understand why. I said you can bring it you can bring all the heat you want but you're not getting through that fucking door while we're still breathing. You understand that? And uh, he didn't like that too much. And, um, and he said, he, he said, well, you have me at a disadvantage. I said, you bet your sweet fucking ass I do. And I said, I'm going to tell you what right now. And that's when it came to me. That's when, when I was listening, I guess the inner side say, um, my prayer was answered by partially me finding him and looking at him at 10 feet away with a shotgun. And the other one that when I had the presence of mind to say, well, I'll make you a deal. I said, we got about 20 people in here. I said, they're non-combatants. I said, you let them go out the back Kuchibajan gate. I said, you let them go, non-combatants, they get away free. And I'll give you my, my, I'll turn myself and my Marines over. You can have us, our equipment and everything you want. I said, no more your people die, no more our people die. I said, that's the way it is. And he says, and what if I don't? And he thought about it for a second. You can see him rolling his eyes and playing, playing the man in charge. And the whole time, you've got people that are hiding behind dumpsters and hiding part, you know, partitions and stuff outside uh, behind a uh, service vehicle. And they got guns trained at my, at, my, uh, at my position. So they know I got him at gunpoint, and I might be able to pull the trigger and then duck if they start opening up. But, you know, and he's looking around, he's looking over his shoulder. I said, don't even think about it. He said, you'll be dead before you hit the fucking ground. And so he's, he's, he asked me, he says, and what if I don't? I said, then I blow your fucking head off right here. I said, you better make a decision, bitch, because this fucking shotgun's getting mighty heavy. 
I'm tired <laughs> of looking. So, you know, he, uh, he, he, he said something in, in Farsi to another guy and the guy, uh, he screams at him. <clears throat> I remember him, uh, walking over. He had a sling. And I said, tell him to sling his weapon. He, he sling the weapon. And I said, man, I got two for one shot. These guys are really fucking stupid. And they, they, they bark it out in, uh, in, in, in Farsi back and forth. I said, I said, what's he says? He says, we will accept this. And I said, okay, that's great. This is going to happen. I said, we're going to open this back door. My, I got a Marine that's going to be sitting over top of you with a shotgun. Okay. And you can, you can frisk these people. And then they go out, they, they go out into the uh, courtyard there. They turn right, they get out in the alleyway and they're gone. I don't know where they're going and I don't give a shit, but they're not here and they're not going to get hurt. And he just shook his head. I said, if one thing goes wrong, you're the first motherfucker that's going to die. I might be the second, but I guarantee I'm going to see your fucking brain splattered. And then his eyeballs are like, you know, and at this point, you're so tense is that I don't know whether it's just you're mad, you're angry. uh, You're not trying to be a tough guy. You're just so full of of fucking virtual hatred, you know, for the situation. But you have to control that. So that passion, you know, will blind you into, you know, what what can tactically or, you know, strategically go wrong. Yeah. Yeah, Anyway, fast forward. Okay, we, we unblocked the door, and one by one, Jack and Ono kept the shotgun over top of them. And they, they, they patted each one down, you know, checked them and all that stuff. One by one by one, I got finally the last one. And we closed the door. We, we boarded it back up again. And he said, now what? And I said, give, us, give me five minutes to uh, get our gear together, and then you come through this door over here. It'll be open. Okay? Reminder, we are still armed and dangerous. I said, now get the fuck out of my face. He walks away, and I looked at the two Marines, and we shrugged our shoulders and go, "Do we shoot it out?" Or uh, you know, I said, "What do you think?" He goes, "Fuck, oh, man, I don't know." They're coming. But he says they're coming through that door in about four minutes. I go, "Fuck yeah, they are." So uh, basically, you know, we stripped everything down. We busted up the antennas and our radio. Took the took the batteries out. Everything we could, we destroyed. Shotgun shells. We 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 put them in the toilet bowl. We we hid things and stuffed them in the ice cream. And I mean, you know, but uh, you know, then uh. The geese fart. He's he's screaming. He's screaming outside to me. I said, "Okay, come in the door." And we had taken everything away from the door except actually locking it, so they couldn't walk through it. I had to make right. him bust it with his foot. So he he kicks it once, or shoulders at once. <clears throat> and one of the guys did on the other side. We're standing there. All our shits in a pile, and we're we're standing there. We got our our hands raised. And out of the corner of my eye, as they're busting the door, I see a a movement, and I look. And I said, who the fuck? They bust through the door. And just as they bust through the door, this person that was over there on the side of the service uh, area, um, right behind the cash register, runs out. And the guy looks at me and he pulls the trigger. And he, he, sh- he fires a short burst. It hits Menachi right in the chest. Uh, I waited, buddy. I said, oh, my God. And he falls. He slides and falls in front of me. And as they funnel in, the other Marines you know, uh, get down on their knees and whatever, surrender. And, and I'm looking at Menachi and I said, how the fuck we, I guess out of our failure, we never cleared everybody that was in that, you know, in the, in the place. We failed to clear it. We thought, well, anyway, we assumed again, you know, fuck, you got, here's the door to get to go to freedom, get the fuck out. And they did, yeah. you know, boom, boom. They couldn't get out fast enough. But Menachi stayed behind. I don't know to this day why, man. And it tears me up every time I talk about it. Howie. So his last two or three breaths is gurgling the blood because he's got, he's got a chest shot fucking chest shot and i'm just holding him here i said my god a couple hours ago i'm gonna help this guy's daughter get through nursing school in pennsylvania my backyard and now so anyway come mm-hmm. over and I, you get kicked in the face and 
now the beatings start, and Mr. Frito Bandito comes in, walking in like the cock of the walk, uh, and a smile and a laugh. Now, a couple of these guys had hoods on and um, white hoods, I mean, and uh, white bands. And I found out later on who they were. They were PLO that had been coming there that uh, Yasser Arafat had actually helped, uh, actually had brought in to help Kamini mm-hmm. and uh, bolster, bolster his position. Anyway, so uh, they, they slap, they, they slap uh, uh, Jack and Henry around, and uh, they tell they t- yeah, they're hitting you, they're kicking you, they're punching you. And so they take them outside. They're, they're doing the same to me. And they hit me in the side of the ribs with it. One guy had an AKM and had a nice, big, heavy uh, wooden walnut stock. And it hit me right in the side of the rib when I had my hands were up. Man, that, that dry, I cracked the rib. That brought me down on my, you know, to my knees and then, you know, on the floor. And he starts sifting through all the shit that's there and everything's busted up and, you know, useless. Even our, our 38 pistols or our 45s are taken apart, springs broken. Making everything is as useless and as unnecessarily uh, possible for them to use. And yeah. he just went furious on my ass. This is the way you Americans negotiate. He says, you promised me this and I let those people go. And I said, I told you, you'd get me and my Marines and my equipment. I didn't say what fucking goddamn position or you know, condition they're going to be in. <laughs> well, he, he didn't find the humor in that one. So when you look at me and you see a little gold tooth on the side, that comes from his boot. <laughs> he kicks you in the they face. Did. Oh, yeah. Well, they, they love the face shot. Mm-hmm. Anyway, stomping and kicking and beating and uh, right then and there. I mean, they're taking turns. You get the, you just crawl up in a fetal position, you know, to try to protect your, uh, your, your vitals. And he stops with that. And he found one of the 870P shotguns. And the, uh, you know, he's, he's finger fucking this thing, looking at it. I'm laying there on the ground looking at him. And, you know, I say, yeah, you fucking fool. You don't have no clue what you're doing with that goddamn thing. But he had found a round and got it in the chamber. And I, I remember, again, the, the joke, as everybody always says, you never, never, never forget the sound of a, uh, a 12-gauge shotgun being racked. Yeah, you don't. Sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. So he's about 10, he's about maybe 20 feet away, about half the, half the distance of the whole entire cafeteria. And now you've got an A70P shotgun, you, you bring it up, it's got the folding stocks, and now you've got a pistol, basically. You've got a pistol shotgun, okay, if you don't uh, retract the stock back and put it in your shoulder. So he's filling the fucking this thing around. He finally gets the, uh, the round in the chamber and he pulls, he pulls it around, looks at me and I can see he's looking for the bead at the end of that, uh, at the end of the barrel. And that's the first thing I realized is that that fucker's going to shoot me. And there's a third voice that's always the side. that's always talking to you third person. He goes, yeah, Ken, you're going to get shot. You know, so get ready. And I'm looking at this thing, and he's looking down his barrel, and he's trying to figure out. Now, we had taken the barrel and banged it on the floor, so it's not round anymore. It's, oh, my God, it's like a figure eight. I mean, you know, we banged the shit out of the goddamn, and closed up the end of the tube of that thing. So, you know, you turn the sh- eight, uh, 12-gauge shotgun into a fucking twenty-two. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and he didn't realize that. And I guess when he's just pointed at me, I can see him smile. And sometimes in my, my nightmares, Howie, I can see that fucking hideous goddamn smile. And what he must have felt like when he pointed that gun at me, in my head, is what he was feeling when I had mine pointed to him. Sure. You know? Oh, yeah. You want to talk about ironic. There it is. And then he pulled so, the trigger. Yeah, he pulls the trigger. And here's how, here's how fucking, you were so fucking terrorized, and you're, you're, you're freaked out that you think that, oh, I'll just sit here and stare at the barrel, and as soon as he pulls the trigger, I'll jump out of the way, you know? And I said, oh, my God, how retarded are you? <laughs> anyway, I, don't, I just remember hearing a, a, hearing, a, hearing a roar and a flash, and 
I got a stinging pain everywhere, my arms, my chest, my face, you know, and I just put my hands up to my face. I brought them down. They're all full of blood. I didn't realize at that time, a lot of that, some of that blood was Menachi's that I, I just had, you know, trying to, you know, put my hands on his, you know, sure. you do it out of, out of, out of a response, you know, so, you know, yeah. protect the wound, you know, cover it over. Although, you know, he's got no hope in any way. So, you know, I just roll over and go out and I don't remember anything except being loaded up on, on, on a stretcher of some type. And, you know, they kept putting my arms up on top of me and they fallen over anyway. What'd they do with the other two Marines? That's what I was just going to say. So I'm walking outside. Uh, they're, they're dragging me outside. It's cold. It's about, like, I don't know what the fuck time it was. It's cold, and you're half-assed fucking naked because you're taking your, you know, your gear off. And I looked through what, what I could because I had blood in my eyes. And I'm looking through, and I see the other two Marines. Um, so they had, had them up against the wall, the wall with, where the door was that led into uh, the concrete wall that led into the embassy. And they're, they're pulling everything down, everything that we put in front of it. They're going to make entry. And I see them uh, lined up against the wall. And I just said, oh, fuck, as if you were going to execute them. You know, I said, oh, fuck, no, fuck, no, don't go God there. Jesus, please, don't, don't, don't let them go out like that. And I, and I passed out. I was gone. I was, you know, here I am. And I thought I was dying at that point. Literally, you know, saying my prayers, I thought I was dying. And next thing you know, I wake up in a, uh, in a field hospital. I was at a field hospital that they had made out of a hotel of some type. Because when I woke up from my eyes, I got IV in each arms and handcuffs to, to a bed. Um, I'm stripped down. Uh, I look, I try to sit up and, and, uh, I have this humongous damn patch of, of, uh, bandages over my stomach and I can't even move my stomach muscles. And I, I can't even move my, my tailbone hurts from the, they kicked me in the tailbone. They fractured my sacrum and cock bone, you know? And I said, fuck my rib. I couldn't even breathe. I said, God damn, I, I, I thought I was dead. Put, put me back into the dead zone. We had this fucking shit hurt. How long were you there? And I, I don't know. I don't know. Because when I'm looking around, the, the walls and the, the crown ceiling, the crown molding on the wall, and the kind of semi-chandelier type of fucking light. And I go, what the fuck kind of hospital is this? And just then, this, uh, this nurse comes in. She's dressed like a nurse. And she said, you're awake. And I said, yeah, where the fuck am I? Who the fuck am I? Whatever. And I'm talking to her. Her name was Souza. And she introduced herself. And she said, uh, you come from the embassy, the Safarat. And I said, hey, well, fuck, I don't know where the fuck I come from. At this point, I didn't know what I was thinking, but I was just glad to follow my training. Is that if they have to ask you the question, then you don't tell them the answer. Okay? Let them fucking figure it out. Because they might know it. Just They might know the answer, you know? Anyway, I said, what happened? When he says, uh, so-and-so, I don't remember till this day, brought you in and uh, told me, told us to keep you alive. I said, oh, really? Well, kudos for those cocksuckers. <laughs> and... Uh, um, so like I said, I got this, I got just a, uh, the, the, uh, the regular, um, hospital gown on with your ass hang out and everything and dog tags are gone. ID's gone. Everything that I was wearing. And I started asking questions. She just looked at me with these eyes that, you know, don't ask questions about that. You know, no, don't ask questions about that. You're okay. Just be quiet. Shush, shush. You know, she said, shush. And I said, what's the matter, man? Where the fuck am I? I want to talk to someone from the embassy. Shush, shush. And I said, what the fuck's going on? She goes, don't talk. Don't say anything. I said, the, the people that brought you in here think you're CIA. I said, what's CIA? And her version is CIA. CIA. Oh, I CIA. said, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Get, get the motherfuckers in here. We'll straighten this shit out. Because, you know, CIA is out the worst case scenario being with the SABAC, the, the Shah's secret police. They right. were ramming them up and just shooting them like they were, oh, like they were Nazis, you know? Yeah. And he said, shoo, shoo, shoo. So she was giving me this guidance. I said, hey, okay, fine. 
I said, can I have something for pain? He says, no, you get nothing for pain. And I said, well, what the fuck is this? You know, red shit and other blue shit. You want to look, look, look at her and say, what, why are you even here? Yeah, really. So uh, she leaves, and then uh, this, other, this other fucking monkey walks in here. And what was he, just a guard? He was just a guard? And no, he wasn't that. No, he was dressed like a, uh, there's picture. I got pictures of it. Because there's a picture of him standing there, uh, the picture that saved my life. Okay? And, and if it wasn't for this photograph I'll tell you about, we'd be not having this conversation today. Yeah. And he's standing there, and when uh, a UPI reporter um, stuck his head in there, and I said, hey, you come from the embassy. And, and he had a French accent. No, no, a British accent. I'm sorry. He had a British accent. So I knew he wasn't one of the games. But he was out there covering the uh, revolution. you know, and he was saying, let me, let me stop your picture. And I said, fine, it's great. So that's where this monkey was standing there. He just, he just wants to be in the picture. You know what I mean? He, he photobombed the motherfucker. Yeah. He, you got a picture of me, and, and it's, on, it's on about 15 different websites. Um, you can pull it up, or I can email it to you. And uh, it, went all, it went around the world, thank God, because it's the only thing that saved me. Anyway, so it's got me laying there, all patched up. You can see me. I look like I've been ate by a wolf and shit off a cliff. You know? <laughs> and he was, uh, he's just standing there holding the IV bottle, like, Hey, you know, I'm Dr. Fucking Corbachian. Yeah. He's crazy. helping you out. Yeah. He's helping yeah, you help me out. So anyway, uh, zoom, I don't see this, uh, photographer anymore. And I've spent my whole fucking life trying to fucking track him down and see who he was. Man. I wanted to fucking shake his hand, man, brother. Anyway. Um, so I, I passed back out. I don't know how fucking long. And when you pass out, you know, whether it's a day, a month, a year or whatever, you just wake up, you got no sense of time or whatever. Sure. And, um, next thing you know, I got these two fucking assholes. Uh, they look like the same type of folks that were over at the embassy. Um, they're dressed up. They're they got heavy, heavy, uh, uh, clothes on for the weather and, um, they're carrying weapons. So they come in and they're saying things to me in Farsi and I have no fucking clue what they're saying. So they called the first, uh, um, first, uh, nurse they could find it was Sousa again. This happened to walk down the hall, I guess. I don't know. And. Yeah, they said something to her like that, and she pushed one out of the way, and he just slapped her up against the wall, yanked the IV out of my and my one arm, you know, and the other one, the tape and everything, uh, he he topped it on the right arm, but the uh, right arm, the the needle didn't come out. So when it, it uh, the plastic tube detached, you just you know start to see the blood squirting out the other way, and you're so tired, you're so beat up, you're you, there's so much other pain that it's overwhelming, you know, your system, your your sensory system. And you're sitting there looking at that, and then you're seeing the blood squirt out, and you're saying, I know that's supposed to fucking hurt, but I don't fucking feel it. Thank you, God. Yeah. So anyway, she walks, she pushes him out of the way again, pulls the needle out, puts a little bit of bandages around it like this. Next thing you know, they're unhooking me uh, from the bed, hook me back up, arms behind me, and I can barely fucking walk. And I said, I can't, and I can't tell him, Susan, I can't, I can't. I couldn't even stand. My stomach, my pain, whatever was in there, had opened me up with a shotgun. And uh, I mean, they, they just paid, basically, Put tape back together and taped it closed again. You ever see the, uh, you know, the scar on my stomach? I, my stomach looks like an NFL football. Yeah, <laughs> That's the kind yeah. of sutures they used. You know, yeah, so would you yeah. use bob wire? Would you use bob wire to put that fucking crap back together? A shoelace. <laughs> oh, well, it's beyond that. <laughs> it looks like a combat boot. <laughs> wow. Anyway, so uh, you know, off we go, and they're giving me commands. And I go. They have to drag me out. I mean, literally, I can't stand my ribs, my my tailbone. I mean, there's, there's not, it's not just pain. You're physically, muscularly incapacitated. Okay. Sure, the muscles yeah, will not yeah, fucking yeah. work. 
Right. I don't care how badass you are, how strong you are. The muscles ain't fucking working. Boom. You know? Yeah. Anyway, so, you know, and they dragging me out. And I remember looking over my shoulder and seeing Souza, And she just takes her little hand and down near her waist and just waves goodbye. And out the fucking door I went in the back of a goddamn vehicle. Right before I got out there, they opened the door. And it was so fucking cold. I remember the door they opened cold and my balls and ass were hanging out of this goddamn, uh, you know, back of this, you know, fucking gurney gown. And so you know, I get to look at her face. The last thing she gets to see is my ass going out the door. <laughs> it's a funny fucking part of it. You know, somewhere, some, and, you know, somewhere today, she, she might be alive somewhere today telling everybody what a nice ass you had. I don't you care. never know. What kind of a big ass I was. <laughs> where did they where did they take you from, from well, yeah, there? driving up and down about a 20 minute drive and uh they took me to a vin prison e-v-i-n uh google that and see what you get in historical records that was the shah secret police torture uh chamber it's been around since like the, the fuck crusades it's basically built on a hill it's an old castle built on a hill and it was uh it goes down below ground several levels you know, and I mean, it's medieval. It's left over from, fuck, I don't know, you know, the uh, Crusades, 1200 BC, uh, 1200 AD, and, and incredible. And you can see where they, it was built, but there's no running water or anything. They don't know how to add, you know, wall, wall stuff, uh, wall conduits to it. Anyway, it was a really bad spot. And that's what the SAVOC, the, that's an acronym for the, the Shah Secret Police. And I'm telling you what, there were some brutal motherfuckers when they had to do their job. And uh, the the Nazi Gestapo didn't have much on these motherfuckers at all. I'm telling you. And uh, you know, basically, when the, when Kamini came in, he opened up all the goddamn prisons. That's all the the crooks, the felons, the psychos, the fuck ups. You know, the deviants. You know, the political prisoners. There, he just opened up the fucking prisons, let them out. Then he started filling them up with the shots, the pro shot people. Everybody, you know, support the shot. The shot had left about three weeks, you know, four weeks ago. You know, he had, they figured out he had cancer and he was terminal. He took $22 billion and said, Bafangu, you know, and he's gone. And his, his ass was out of the country. When you were in this prison, they, they shot at you again, didn't they? No. They, they, uh, they, in the prison, it was weird because they, uh, the prison, it, it was, it was a, a line of, uh, of cells, but the cell doors were open and up until the point where you, you come up to the end of the, uh, end of the hallway. And you can meander in and out of every cell. But there, hardly anybody spoke any English at first, or they were afraid to talk to me. And all I said is that when they, I, uh, I, w- I was crawling at the time because I couldn't walk, and um, I crawled down to. I remember reckon. Uh, I remember being able to uh, find or uh, teach myself Farsi enough that I was there for numbers. Um, you know, one through a hundred, how to figure out a number because basically that tells you uh, what building you're at or where you're going. Or and or we always looked at the uh, diplomatic plates or the plates of the vehicles that come in, you know, and read it. So when you write it down, you write it down in Farsi, then you write it down in English. So, you know, you, you speak of Farsi, yek du ser char pan shish afach no da yozda yozda, and it's very easy to, to learn numbers. But as soon as I seen, it looks like a backward seven, and and I looked at that and I said, oh, punch, cell number five. So I put my head in. And they looking at me, and I spoke a little bit of English. And a couple that were in there kind of like looked the other way. And one says, "You American?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "Come, come, come in." Bia, 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 come in. And uh, you know, he, the room ended up being um, let me see, twelve foot high, fifteen feet wide, twenty-one foot long, a box. And there was twenty-one of us in there, in each each room. It had little bunk beds that were chained to the wall, 
and you were downstairs below ground, one little light bulb. So, I mean, it's very incandescent and it's, you know, you couldn't see very much. And the stench was overwhelming. Oh, Howie, you've been a freaking, uh, you know, dead bodies and crime scenes. It, you know, it's like, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, even through your respirator, it smells, you know what I mean? Sure. And it's just putrefying. I said, what the fuck died down here? Well, obviously a lot. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So I found my, I found my little, my little niche in the corner and I, I just laid down there, rolled up, put my ass up against the wall and balled up and, you know, and that, that was the way that was. And you get, you got to remember now, I've had basically no sleep. I mean, I've been knocked the fuck out, but you got no deep REM sleep, no water, no food, nothing for it. I don't know how long it's been because you're time deprived. There's no, there's no light in the windows. There's no fucking windows. You know what I mean? So you don't need to see, you know, morning, noon or night. You have no clue. And, and of course, you're in so much goddamn pain. That's all you're, you know, focusing on. And you're wondering where the fuck is everybody? Who the fuck, when the fuck, where the fuck everybody is? And you have no goddamn answers. I so, was reading uh, uh, a bit on on a explanation of some of your time in there. And it talks about they stuck a rifle barrel in your mouth. Oh, yeah. No, a uh, pistol barrel. A pistol That's the other tooth. When you see me close up again, you'll see up front. And you go, oh, that 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 big tooth up front is a little bigger than the other one. Yeah, because the other one's natural wears down. This one here's finally got the VA to pay for a porcelain one that they chipped. And they and what oh. would they do? Pull the trigger on an empty gun just to torture you? And what they did is is, is they eventually pulled me out. And there's this other guy who's real tall, thin, obviously Arabic, uh, uh, Persian looking. I called him number two because he didn't have all my answers. And right. if he could answer everything or whatever, he called me a man. You hear him at the other end you know, scream something about, you know, where's the American? In the, where's the American threat? He says, cell number five. And it's all, this is in all Farsi. Later on, I found out what they were saying, but I didn't know at the fucking time. But after this barking went on, then some then two guards would come down and uh, grab hold of me. They found out where I was and, and they, you know, dragged me out. Drag you up the fucking steps to, to a little room. And again, it's, you never see light or day. You have no idea what time, time frame you're at. And they sit you in this chair. And I still have nightmares for this day. And when I write my book on my cover, it's going to have a collage of different things. And this is going to be this fucking chair that's going to be in the corner. I guarantee it. Yeah. It's old. Uh, if you've ever been around a military base or even maybe some of the old government buildings, it's a steel chair. Everything on it is like square. It's got hard plastic, hand, hand curved um, armrest. And it's just like a big piece of steel. Oh, yeah, and I've seen them. them you know? yeah. yeah, and they still make them today. I, I sure. Them. Anyway, but this one's bolted, got, got uh, L, L brackets and bolted to the floor right over a drain. And they sit you in that thing, and they got these Velcro uh, straps that they put on your legs and on your thing and across your chest. So you're not going anywhere. Fuck, I, I, couldn't, even, I couldn't even get in the fucking chair. They had helped me up. I was so fucking weak. Everywhere mm -hmm. I walk, I walk a few steps, and my feet just fucking drag. And they just had to drag me, you know, God, if you, you know, shit, if my dick was longer enough, you'd have a three-legged goddamn, you know, <laughs> the trail right there. It's, it's sad, man, because, you, you know, you're so weak and you feel so helpless. You don't know anything. Any question that even comes to your mind, there's, oh, should I ask, do I ask? And nobody's asking anything. So that's where they sit you in the chair and then the slapping begins. Well, not right away, but, you know, they start asking questions. Okay, all right, let's play the game. Name, rank, serial number, which... I don't give a serial number because we don't use serial numbers. And I sure the fuck ain't going to give them my goddamn social security number. And right. I'll everything else they get, you know, date of birth. And, you know, here it is. Kiss my ass. You know, so 
they get tired of, you know, talking to you and asking you the same questions and who are you and this and that, where you been? I said, look, you know, I lied a little bit. I said, I look, you know, I'm here from, I'm here from, uh, you know, with, with the state department, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't tell them I was there temporary do with, with Cyprus or anything. Anything that they could track back as fact, they don't need to fucking know. Okay. Yeah. He said, I was, I was sent here, you know, as, as a, a special envoy to, uh, help, uh, uh, work in the mail room down there where the mail came in, it came down chutes and it came in areas down in a secure area. So if anything came in that was a bomb, a letter, um, you know, with poison or anything, we could shut it off. It, it, even if it blew up and exploded, we could contain it down in, in, in the ground and lock it down. And we did. We had regular people that did that, EOD people and other people that watched things. And of course, the ones that handled the mail that read Farsi to begin with, you know, um, but we were always there to give them, you know, safety and security. And uh, make sure that they were doing their job at the same time. Like I said earlier, you know, we were there to make sure, you know, did the same job. And they're not paid off to be, you know, fucking us up. So you basically told them you worked in a mail room. Yeah, yeah. In the mail room. And, you know, and I, and they said, and, and see, they didn't know who I was. They had no fucking clue. I mean, yeah. you know, I got this. Oh, but let me back up real quick. Once I had gotten there, uh, they did give me these pair of pajamas. They took the, uh, the road, the, uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, the nurse's gown off and gave me a pair of fucking stretch pajamas. And a uh, and another shirt, another heavy shirt that had fucking bullet holes in the goddamn thing. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm looking at it. this one's torn. I go, no, that's uh, got blood on it. Motherfucker, that's a bullet hole. You know, that's from Alaska. <laughs> they shot. Yeah, well, whatever. Somebody, whoever was wearing this motherfucker, got shot. You know, and so uh, I I wasn't hanging out anymore. My back end, but still, my toes and everything was fucking freezing cold. And uh, you're sitting in this fucking chair, and they strap you in, and they want to know who you are because. Nobody knows. I don't know who assaulted the embassy. I don't know who took me out of the embassy, and I don't know who uh, who kidnapped me out of the fucking hospital. Okay, all different uh, factions or whatever. Nobody's talking to each other. I found out later on who they were, though. You know, once we got out of Iran, and they said, "Here's what happened," and the analysis and the intelligence people, and I learned out. And I said, "Holy fuck!" Anyway, so um, yeah, one of the one of the tortures they had is they love your feet. You know, Arabs love to beat fucking feet, or people in the Middle East. Man, and you know what? I don't know where they learned it from, but it's it's pretty goddamn effective. After a while, when you know, I was watching them, you know, uh, assault and 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 uh, torture, literally torture, um, some of their own people that were in there, and they put them, they hang them up upside down and uh, over this pipe and and drag them up with a big rope, and they take this little uh, uh, God, uh, this little switch that was about as thick and about as thin as a uh, an antenna off a car, and you could hear that thing go. And that's a wicked fucking sound, especially when it's hitting your feet. And you get hear him screaming and yelling and, and begging and, and farsi. And then you, know, you, you just want to, you can't turn. All you can do is you turn your head away and you try to turn off your, your audio. You know, you don't hear it. And then you're looking at him when he finally let the rope down and you look at his feet and they look like fucking hamburger. They beat them fucking feet. Now, the guy, guy will probably never walk the rest of his fucking life. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like, Jesus Christ. They go, oh, fuck. And the worst thing is they go, oh, I'm next. I said, no, probably not, because my feet are on the fucking ground here, you know? But he comes over, and, and another guy says, he wants to know who I am, and we're going through this again and again and again. I just keep the same thing. So he gets tired of that, and the slapping session starts, you know? And the slapping sessions hurt a lot, but then you get numb to it, and mm -hmm. all he has to do is raise his hand, and you're like Pavlov's dog. You already start turning and anticipating, you know, so you start turning it. But yeah. there's something demeaning about being slapped by another man. It's yeah. like, a, you know, you're a bitch. You know, you're my bitch and I got you. And it's just the egotistical thing is overwhelming 
you know, your ego and, and hurting your, hurting your pride. And I go, punch me like the man that I fucking think I am. Well, yeah. stupid. If he does, he's going to bust your fucking jaw. But that's the, that's the weird thing about being in that position or being trained in the Marine Corps or being trained, you know, in any special forces or something like that. It's just, that's what you, that's what you, you respond to, you know? I mean, I wasn't spitting at him or, or, you know, causing any, you know, any kind of uh, anger with him. I just, you know, don't oh, this. That's all you're gonna get, you know. I'm no CIA operative. I'm not the CIA crypto man. I'm not, you know, I'm not anything that you fucking think I am. But they just try to beat me out of a commission, uh, a, uh, in, in the committing, you know, some type of li- lie or perjury or admitting something that wasn't true, you know. And, it, I'm not and then did that. they did they eventually um, put you on trial? They tried you for something, or yeah, and it did. So you get it in and out, and that's where he he stand on top of my toe. My, my right toe and just squish it down and say Marine Corps, Vietnam, CIA, commando. And of course, when he's using all this, I know he's a fucking idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just angry because he can't get me to, you know, agree to whatever he's fucking interrogating me about. And then uh, another time they had, uh, uh, the guy had you know, taken a pistol out and it was, it was a CZ 75, 75. I recognize it. And, uh, he did. He didn't have a round in the chamber, but he chambered one, and you know he put it next to you know right on my lip, right on my, my my regular front teeth, and he would just you know ask me the questions, tell me again, tell me again, and he keeps pushing. Now he's pushing, and I'm pushing back away. But after a while, I run out of space in that chair, right? So the fucking that bullet, that I mean that uh, the, the front side of that thing's still coming. So you know you know you end up opening your mouth, and the uh, the front side chipped the shit out of my tooth. All the way down to the, uh, almost down to the uh, uh, root. And I went to that, and I, I, and he pushes it all the way back to your throat. And next thing you know, he pulls the trigger, and you're, oh my god, oh happy, that's that's oh my god, nothing. It was he deliberately put it on an empty chamber. It wasn't locked. It wasn't a live round. And he just ha 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 laughs, and he and he he ejects the empty shell and it hits the floor. I look at it it was an empty shell, and I went. Oh fuck me, runner! And then, he, then of course, he reloaded another one in there. And right now, I can feel I got this piece of something in my mouth, and I'm like, "What the fuck?" And I spit it out, and I put my tongue up, and I go, "Fuck, that's a piece of my fucking tooth, you bastard!" You know? Yeah. And uh, oh, there's there's this another time they put your two. Imagine taking your two hands and putting them together, um, pinky to pinky, and like you're praying. And now take your elbows and try to touch them. Watch the pain you get in the back of your uh, shoulder blades, excruciating after a few seconds. And they put a piece of another Velcro right across it like a saddle, and they pull your two uh, elbows together. And, man, I'll tell you what, the pain in the back of your uh, shoulders is excruciating. And now they take a cigarette, and they like the cigarette, they lay it right on the middle of your arms. By The burn marks are still there. You know, And they, they're trying to do things. To increase the pain, increase, increase, uh, in, in, uh, intimidating and humiliating you into giving up and quitting, so that you'll acquiesce and give up. Um, you know exactly what you are, who you are, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, yeah. eventually the shock overwhelms you. You're pissing, you're shitting on yourself. You know, you can't control your bowels, and you just say, "God damn, put a fucking bullet in me, will you?" I can't tell you anything more. I'm fucking useless. I can't help you. And they drag you back and they and they, they send you to, they drag you back to uh, the cell. The guys in the cell see how you know beat up and fucked up you are. They've been through half the same goddamn shit, you know. 
and I pass out for out and a half fucking long. You wake up and you wake up because they they got this little cart and the cart's got these wooden bowls on it, giant wooden bowls, and it's full of uh, uh, rice, berenge in, in Farsi. It's little uh, red lentils. And uh, you got two pitchers of plastic pitchers of water and you have uh, uh, a ball, a couple balls of whatever the fuck they want to call that is meat. But they call it gush, which is meat. That's literally the word gush meat. And I know it's not pork and it's that fuck. It ain't, it ain't beef. It ain't going to feed us beef. So that's either camel, donkey, or, you know, or Maybe a fucking a horse meat or something. Oh, I don't know. Whatever the fuck it was, man. It felt so fucking uh, so foul. And uh, anyway, so I, uh, they put that in the room and people that wanted to eat ate. And everybody's moaning around it. I remember walking, uh, crawling over and trying to get between, you know, two or three guys and, you know, get my handful or something like that. And I made a mistake of putting both my hands in a rice bowl, you know, to get, get some rice. And then somebody elbowed me so fucking hard on the top of my head, it rolled me back. And um, <clears throat> one of the guys that was there, uh, I, I ended up calling Kima for the short of whatever he was. Kima told me, he says, you never put both your hands in that bowl. He says, your right hand is for eating and your left hand is for cleaning yourself. He says, that's a fatwa or whatever, whatever the fuck he said it was. You know, it's, I said, oh, now I know. So that night I went and went out eating you know now i don't know I, I don't know how long i've been out so you're not getting breakfast lunch and dinner if you came in bacon and eggs i figured okay that's breakfast now lunch now dinner nothing like that you got this once or whenever a couple of hours or whatever and you ate what you want and they didn't give a shit what you guys did to each other you know it, it was horrible so i had to wait again and now your stomach is you got you're oh god you're just you're out of energy you're out of uh you're out of you're out of everything except fucking oxygen and hope. That's the only two goddamn things you got left. Yeah. And uh, so I started talking with a couple guys in there, and it's weird because you wonder how I learned how how wide the dimensions of the um, uh, cell that I was in. The, the one guy had a, a pad of paper, and, and he was making notes. They allowed him to uh, make notes or whatever. He was some kind of semi preacher and talk about the Quran and things like that. But it's an eight and a half by eleven uh, pad of paper that was in there. So I said, you know, when I was so fucking, when, I, when you wake up and you, you got to do something because you're going at, you buy, I asked for the piece of that paper. So basically, as you fold it and you walk it down the wall, it's basically a foot at a time. So that's where, you, you know, you guys say, well, I wonder how wide this motherfucker is, you know, how tall this picture is. And that, that's what you did. And now my stomach is, my, is wounds, it's getting really sore. And I can start to, I peel back a little bit of the tape and stuff. I can start to see it's all red and you're getting infected and septic. So I said, ah, fuck it, you know, and I ain't got much, much more time in this goddamn shithole. So uh, that's where they pulled me out. <clears throat> they pulled me out and uh, uh, back upstairs again, they, they, they brought me same room. And this time uh, the guys wanted to, uh, uh, they were not brutal, but they, 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 they had their way. You know, they slapped you around, punch you, kick the back of the head, you know, put a knife up to your throat. You know, I said, God damn it. Just. Fucking do it for fuck's sake, will you? And uh, one of them wanted to say, they said, look, you know, I can help you. I said, how are you the fuck going to help me? What do you, have? you, you in charge of this goddamn circus or what? And he says, uh, he says, look, this is so brutal. We believe who you are. And he says, maybe you can help us help yourself. He said, um, you, you know, security, you know, the, the, your, your tactics, your training, you know how embassies are run. He says, we need to know this. We need to, we want to learn this. And he says, if you help us, you know, learn how 
you know, responses and everything that you're taught and learned and what we, we, you know, we can use that in the future. I said, use it for what, motherfucker? Are you going to attack embassies around the country? You're going to, you know, I said, what happened to my embassy anyway? Tell me that first of all. And he just looked down and they kind of like a, a sucker kiss. And he says, it's no more. It's gone. And, you know, I said, that's man. That's where my balls dropped out. That's where my heart dropped out, Howie. I went, oh, my God. Because I knew when I left, I seen the flag was gone. The flag was down. The, uh, the chancery building was smoking. So I know they had, they had breached that. I seen the Marines lined up on the wall. They'd been shooting the shit out of everybody that moved anyway. So why wouldn't I believe that the embassy had fallen and they had executed everybody? Because these people didn't give a fuck about sovereignty or anything else. There was nobody yeah. there coming to our, our rescue. And Kamini wasn't going to do a goddamn fucking thing. So that was it. And, you know, that just really, if I had any hope left, I'll tell you what, it cut my hope in half and a little bit of that despair started to come in. When you start to despair, I'm telling you, that gets into the marrow of your, of your bones and your mental capacity to uh, rationalize shit, even with all the pain. And you're starting to say, what the fuck? Man, the fucking embassy's gone and I'm all that's left and nobody needs to know where the fuck I am. Yeah. You know? So he tells me this guy, and he's trying to sell me on what he can do for me, et cetera, et cetera. But basically, you know, he just wanted me to, uh, you know, lay down and, and let him know, you know, what codes were like or, and all the information that we could ever give. None of it's going to be top secret, not diplomatic. It, it all has to do with uh, responses and, and training and how we, uh, how we look at things from security point of view and what other embassies and things like that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I told the guys, look, man, uh, I hate to piss on your parade, but I mean, I just can't do it. I mean, if you believe, you know, that I'm a, I'm a Marine, I'm an American fighting man. I serve in the forces that guard my country in our way of life. Yeah. I'm here to give my life in their defense. I can't yeah, do it. Yeah, man. You're no. asking me to be a traitor, to trade my life that would ever going to be anything where I can never go home again. I, I, I would be a traitor to my family, my family, and my country, my God. I mean, I can't do this. I said, I'm almost dead anyway. I mean, I'm septic. I mean, I, I mean I'm out of here in a few hours or whatever. So pinch me, shoot me, butt fuck me. I don't give a flying fat fuck what you guys do. You know, uh, I'm done with it. I'm done with it. But no, you're not getting anything from me. So have at it. And you were. You're, that, that little bit of before, I would never have challenged him with anything like that. But the little bit of despair that's coming in, you know, that the embassy's not there and you're just going to die in a, in, a, in a fucking shithole somewhere. No one's going to know where you are. So they left me there and uh, some guys came in and uh, took me out of the fucking chair. I don't know how long it was, a day, a week, a month. I had no fucking clue. You pass out, you wake up. And he's, he brought me into a different room. It was a, a lot nicer. It wasn't near a dungeon. It was almost like an administrative area. And I just didn't have any machines or anything, just kind of like a semi-office. He put me in a little different, comfortable chair. And these two guys in suits come in. And I was like, oh, good cop, bad cop. Well, well, who the fuck are you? Right away, I knew as soon as he opened his mouth, he's Russian. I know. I mean, really? They have, they have a very unique, you know, fucking guy. They said the same as the French, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he says, uh, I am so-and-so. You introduced himself. I don't remember to this day who the fuck he was. And, uh, I, and I said, yeah, well, what the fuck are you doing here? And he says, well, he says, first of all, I want to apologize about what happened in that room over there. We have no control over that. Um, he says, they are animals. They're barbaric. I said, yeah, and you're sitting down here with them. Now he said, that makes you, you know, Two, two feathers of the same bird. Mm. And, uh, you know, and, uh, he said, 
I don't understand this American colloquialism, you know, shit. I said, okay, Ivan, what the fuck do you want? And so he was saying, well, you know, we work with the American, well, we work with the uh, Swiss Red Cross, and it blew smoke up my fucking ass. What's the deal? And he, again, he just wanted to give me a nice chance to come clean at who I was and whatever. The Russians want to know, is this a guy, uh, CIA guy? Is this a crypto guy? Yeah. You know, because, again, nobody knew who the fuck I was. You know? So they ask questions. They say, hey, you write down your name, your address, your phone number. We'll let your family know, and, and <laughs> et cetera. And, yeah, I'm going to give you my motherfucking goddamn address. What are you out of your goddamn fucking, you know, caviar eating fucking mind? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I said, this just gets fucking better. But what is it, a comedy hour now? Yeah. And he says, did, no. he, did he at least, I mean, did you say, did you figure he was Russian from his accent or did he say he was? No, I, from his accent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, he, he's fucking Russian. He's KGB. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or GRU, one of the two. Right. And, you know, and we're trained to fucking ignore these fuckers. Right. They're doing this shit all the time. A lot of females, even in, in towns, in, in cities where, you know, uh, Marines and everybody hang out. You always got to watch, you know, who's trying to crawl up your ass or in your ear. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you get that at embassy, scar, embassy guard school. So I told him, I said, I said, no, I said, save your time, Igor. It ain't happening. And, you know, he says, okay, well, we're sorry. He shoved his shoulders. We tried. We wanted to help you. I said, yeah. Said, Take your happy, healthy ass down the fucking hall. So they sent me back in and uh, another round of whatever. Uh, I get back to the uh, to the uh, slop house, you know, my, my cell. And the guys are wondering why Kima uh, uh, told me, um, he says, "How come they keep taking you, you know, back and forth, back and forth?" And he said, "I'm the I'm the I'm the hit parade for these guys. They don't know who I am." And I said, "Why do you ask?" He says, "Because most of the time when they take people out of here, they they don't return. They're either let go or uh, they take them up to the roof and fucking execute them." I said, "Oh God, this shit just keeps getting fucking better." So you know, I'm over two on the batting list here. You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, eventually, number two came back down and says, he says. Uh, you will go on trial. And they, the other two guards helped me drag my fucking fat ass up the goddamn steps again into a, into a, a, look, uh, into a dark room, maybe t- semi-dark. Lights were behind these, uh, these mullahs. There was four of them, I think. Yeah, four. Two, three had white turbans on, one had black turbans on. I don't know what the fuck that means. And uh, they sat me in the chair, and they didn't strap me in this chair. Not the same place, different chair. They didn't strap me in. They said, you will go on trial for shooting Iranians. And I said, oh, fuck. So this guy over here, she says, this will be your translator. I mean, not lawyer, not, you know, uh, advocate or anything. No, just a fucking translator. And I said, well, wow, wonderful. So we go through the assault on the embassy, what happened. And again, I give him my, you know, you didn't catch me with any arms or, or anything. I don't know who you guys are. I said, I was there for the, you know, work in the mail room, et cetera. So I don't even have a weapon. And I'm still wearing the nasty fucking clothes they gave me. And so they're making me all these accusations, you know. Well, I just got about fucking sick and tired of it. And then I just say, you know, don't put me through the fucking mess. You're going to fucking shoot me. Goddamn fucking shoot me. You know, so I, I try to hold myself up and against the chair. And I stand up and I said, look here. And I'm talking to these mullahs, these uh, religious whack jobs that are, you know, sitting in front of me at the table. And I'm talking to them, but I have to, it has to, and I'm arguing, I mean, Direct, directed it to him, but has to go through the interpreter here. And I said, 
you guys are supposed to be holy men with a uh, uh, established uh, um, agency of law and order. And I said, this is, you know, supposed to be uh, something coming from your God and Allah. Well, the little bit that I read about your Quran, he says that, you know, he says, you, you don't convict people to death without witnesses and without evidence, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so the little bit that I knew about the Quran at the time, I even gave him one or two surahs. Uh, surah is a, uh, is, a, is a paragraph of it, kind of like the chapter in a Bible. Right. And, you know, you know so they're kind of, you know, fucking itching their ass and going, oh, what the fuck? This motherfucker. Well, uh, I don't know what they thought. I'm speculating at this point. But, you know, they're barking back and forth. I said, but he says, I have a right to have the witnesses against me, the evidence, the bodies, the, the uh, ballistics. And you can appreciate that one. Everything you ever think and do or said. I said, I just, I just got wounded in, in, the, in the assault on the embassy. And uh, I don't know where I am, who I am, or, you know, what's, what's going on. I said, so I challenge you before, you know, your law, I'm going to hold you accountable to your own law. Is that you find those? And I know they couldn't find them. They, they fucking exist. So I thought I was on the winning side of this, right? <laughs> and you know, probably, you know, I, I gave him, uh, I gave him the best OJ trial, you know, uh, uh, redirect that they ever had. And and I was just so full of pain, I just you know collapsed down on the floor, and I don't remember anything after that. I remember waking up in my cell, and uh, when I woke up in a cell, three or four of the guys sitting around me were all smiling. They patted me, you know, they patted me on the shoulder. And you know, I said, you know, what, what the fuck's going on? What do I do? Win the, you know, blue ribbon or, you know, contest? And uh, they said, you know, anybody that goes out of here that goes to trial never comes back. Never. They haven't seen anybody come back. You either let go or after trial, you're, ex- you're taken up, uh, up top and, and executed. And every once in a while, I'd, I'd hear this pop, 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 you know, these shots and stuff. I didn't think anything about it. I had too much other shit on my mind. But he, he says, you hear those sounds up there? He says, that's men being executed. And I said, fuck, I knew it was gunshot, right? And I thought, boy, yeah, they're just taking them up. I was going to summarily fucking shoot them right there. They toss them, they toss them off the roof, and then guys down below pick them up, put them in a fucking truck, and haul their ass away. I said, fuck me, you're running. Holy shit. So I'm thinking that, you know, I'm out, I'm past, and uh, uh, I said, all right, fine. You know, I, I call their bluff. You know, they're not going to be able to kill me with it. So. Next round, next time I say we have, we got another couple bowls of rice, and this time I behaved myself, and I was able to eat for a little bit, which gave me the shit, and we ain't gonna talk about that, because what they had there was not even a fucking toilet. A hole in the fucking wall, a hole in the floor, where, you know, you squat over, and there was a bucket where you're, you know, supposed to clean your fucking hand that looks like, looks like something NASA wouldn't even fucking want to, you know, look at. Horrifying. And, you have to, and I couldn't even walk. I had to crawl down, you know, five to four to three to two uh, cells, to, you know, at the end of the hallway, they even use that fucking toilet. You know what I mean? Some guys wouldn't use them. They just piss the shit right there in the fucking cell, which usually got them beat. When I see one or two of them get beat for, you know, doing that there, I said, whoa, that beating, I can't take it. You know, they kicked me in the stomach one more time, I'm dead. So still wanting to stay the fuck alive. You know what I mean? Oh, but yeah. knowing that everything you go through, it's one, it's one inch closer, you're slipping on the rope. And, you find, do you uh, find how amazing it is, your will to live? I mean, think about everything you just went through. And oh, you're still saying, I'll crawl my ass down there to shit in the hole. Yeah. Just to avoid exactly. that last beating. Exactly. Yeah. And you don't think about it at the time, but, you know, after the, next, after the last 38, 40 years, it comes back to you all the freaking time. I bet it does. Oh. So anyway, uh, number two comes down. And I'll, again, I, I, I can't give you a time frame because there's no windows. There's no doors. You don't have any clue what time it is. 
you fall asleep, you pass out, you wake up, you don't know whether you've been there a, a minute, an hour, or, or forever. So time de definition, especially the time and depreciation and the ability to tell time and sequence it out is just, you know, not available. And, and, and after it gets to a point where it's a moot point, who gives a fuck what time it is, you know? It's mm -hmm. time to feel your bones and ache. It's time to maybe drink a little water if you can find it. So uh, number two comes down, uh, comes down back in to the cell. And he looks in and, and, and he said, they call Marine, Marine. I said, I'm over here in the corner. And he says, uh, the, uh, the council has found, has found, has, has found all the evidence and answers. And he says, you were found guilty. I said, oh, really? I, I don't get to see it. He says, no, you don't get to see it, but they've seen it and they're convinced. I said, okay, now what? He says, you'll be executed tomorrow. Just so fucking nonchalant, like he doesn't give a shit. And just walked out. Walk the fuck out. Nice. I'm waiting for the punchline here. I'm going, okay, I'm going to be executed tomorrow. They can't do that. Wow. They're going to do it. They do it every fucking day. They do it to their own fucking people. You think they're not going to do it to you? Yeah. Shit, if, they, if any of them had been, been involved in the embassy, like uh, the Frito Bandito, and realized, you know, I'd been shooting the shit at them, I wouldn't have gotten that far. Yeah, you know what right. I mean? I'd, I'd have been, I, arms and legs would have been pulled off. So thank God, you know, these guys are not coordinated with whoever the fuck else was running the show. So what happened the next day? So, well, he said the next day, and that's in his term of day. So I could not fucking sleep. I go, I can't close my fucking eyes. <laughs> I'm sure. You know, you know, yeah. As if keeping my eyes open means it's, it's going to, you know, uh, <laughs> prevent this from happening, you know, or postpone it in any way, shape or form. And so you start to, you know, you start to make peace with yourself and your maker, you know, you say, okay, you know. What does, uh, you know, what does being a Christian mean to you? What does being saved or redeemed or salvation? You know, what does the blood of Jesus, you know, mean to you? What is all things that you ever think, do, or say? You, know, you better start fucking taking an inventory of, the, you know, your feelings because every tick of the fucking clock is, 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 is against you. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, eventually I did, I think, pass out. But um, it came to the point where, you know, um, uh, they ca this called for me. When they came down, and said, American cell number five. Get the American cell number five. And I was so fucking listening. They brought a couple of goons down and uh, you know, motioned me to come along. I said, and I was in no position to re uh, respond against them. You know, there's no way you're going to fight them and, 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 and resist. That's crazy. You know, I said, okay, just help me the fuck up, will you? Now, at that point, I didn't think I was going to be executed. I didn't know if that was supposed to be the execution. But I knew when I, as soon as they turned me down the hallway, I saw number two there. And he's like happy. Oh, my God. He looked, he looked happy, almost with a fucking shit-eating grin on his face. And I said, motherfucker, this is it right here. And, uh, you know, so I'm thinking, you know, you go out like James Cagney, you know, in a movie, pissing and shitting fire. Or you look him in the eye like John Wayne, and, you know, say something really unique. You know, but as they're as they're dragging you and helping you, you know, you're making peace and you're saying, Howie, the only thing I really, really wanted most important at that point is I wanted to have enough courage to look at if they didn't forcibly blindfold me or however they shoot you, you know, I don't know. Uh look them in the fucking eye, knowing it's coming. And the other thing is I wanted I asked God, I said, Man, God, please, well after I'm dead and gone, do not let them Dishonor me in such a way that they said I was a criminal, a baby killer, or a rapist, or something like that. Do not let them make a story about me, my character, or anything. 
that would degrade my service to my country or my family. Yeah. Still worried about, you know, my family and what they might have to live through. You know, we executed this guy because, you know, he raped, you know, whatever, or he was a horrible fucking man. He did this and ate babies or whatever. And they can say any story they want, make up any lies they want about you, you know? Sure. Oh, yeah. And there's nothing here. You're dead and gone. <laughs> You're worm food. And the Marine Corps of the United States of America and the Marine Corps and my family and friends would have to live with that, you know, that jacket. You know? Yeah. And I said, man, that's all I ask is just say, hey, you know, he's a Marine that fought for his country. He stood his ground. He knew the game when he was in there. He played it well. Yeah. And that's it. You know, send the body in. home. Send the body home. And that's all I wanted. That's, you know, at, at that point, you have lost every uh, aspect of freedom, or you got nothing left to lose, man. And really, mm-hmm. in a way, you are totally free. And you're guilt ridden, gone. Your sins are forgiven. And they say, "Just get me the fuck out of here," you know. And I'm just thinking, you know. You, so we start walking up the. We went down a different hallway, and I could feel the cold air from. You know, we're getting near the surface, and you know, because it's a lot colder than it was downstairs, and the air didn't smell half as bad. And these guys are trying to help me up these fucking steps. And I'm just thinking, I said, man, I hope they, I hope the fuck they shoot straight. They don't make a mess of the goddamn thing. You know what I mean? They got some <laughs> these sober fucking rifles. Hey, this is a, this is the insanity. This is how crazy you get. But this crazy yeah. becomes a new norm. It yeah, becomes yeah. a new fucking norm, you know? And uh, so next thing I know is number two comes running down the goddamn hallway, screaming, yelling. I mean, laugh, top of his voice. And, uh, and he grabs hold of these guys, and he gets right in front, he gets right in their face, and they let go of me. And they're talking back and forth, and in Farsi, and I just remember him just you know getting in the face, and he put yeah you know, he put it he put a knife hand right up to this guy's fucking face, and it, it it was some type of threat. I don't know what the fuck it was, but um, uh, next thing you know is that these guys are picking me up, walking me back down the same down the steps, down the hallway where uh, number two had just been running. And I said, no, whoa, whoa, where the fuck over, goddamn. I was just getting enough strength and, and dealing with the pain of, of trying to climb up these fucking steps, you know? And uh, <clears throat> so they get me up, and we walk two more flights up, one, two, one, two more flights up. And now we are, for the first time, we are at the administration level of this prison. Because I can see offices, I can smell regular, I can smell food, and I see light from offices because there's windows. It actually hurt my eyes because I've seen, you know, anything like this. First time I, ever, I saw semi-fucking daylight. And they walked me to an office and, and sit me on this bench in this office. And I remember laying down on the side of this bench. And I was if I'm going to go to sleep or die. I said, now what the fuck's going to go on? And they just walked out of the room, left me unguarded. Nobody was there. And, but I was so tired, so weak, I couldn't even lift up to look out the fucking window. All I could see was just the light coming through the shade. You know? The next thing I get these two guys, these two suits come in and they introduce themselves. They have uh, like a German accent, but actually they're Swiss and they're from the uh, Swiss Red Cross. They introduce themselves. They had these little credentials. And, and I said, OK, fine. I said, what is it? Is this uh, uh, my last meal or something? They send this like a Red Cross in. And he says he they asked me a couple of questions, you know, about myself and the embassy and things like that. And he says, OK. And. <laughs> This is going to kill me, I tell you. But uh, they stepped out of the office and they, they waved their hands and in walks Jack Schellenberger. And he's, in a, he's a diplomat, he's a, one of the diplomatic consuls at the embassy. Hmm. And I look up and I, and, and I had to try to sit up. And I'm thinking, I'm dead. I think, oh, no, this is, this is you know, uh, I'm been shot. 
And this is just memories. You know, this is Twilight Zone as you go to when you're dead. And he looks at me and I look at him. And I said, you're alive. That guy heard everybody in the embassy, you know, been whacked. And he said, you're alive. And I said, oh, my God. When he spoke, I knew, I knew almost that, that he was real. And I tried to sit up. He came over. He hugged me. I hugged him. And you know the first thing I had to do? I had to smell him. I had to smell his clothes. I had to smell the, his uh, cologne or whatever it was. Because that told me that he, he was fucking real. And he said, oh, my God. He says, what happened to you? I said, I thought you were dead. It was, we, just, we just exchanged but what ifs, you know, back and forth with each other. He says, no. He said, I'm here to take you home, kid. Wow, man. And I busted down. That was the last thing I could take. That broke my back. I oh, literally man. just fell down crying and just feed, went down in a fetal position. And they, they helped me out. They helped me up. Um, they, they put a coat on me. They gave me some shoes. And uh, they walked me out the they walked me out the door through a couple steel doors, and got me in a vehicle, and I drove away. And man, when I walked outside, I remember the the sun hurting my eyes so bad that I had to keep the eyes closed. But I wanted to look at that fucking prison from the outside. But I could. It's like you had uh, trying to keep your eyes open with the pepper spray in it. You know what I mean? Just sheer yeah. discrimination. And you can, uh, still, you can still see that prison, can't you? Oh, all the time. I can draw yeah. pictures of it. I could draw you fucking pictures of it. Where did they take uh, you? What, what it looks like now, I don't know. That's 40 years ago. You'd have yeah. to go back in at the time. And, you know, I don't even know if it's in existence still anymore. Probably, sure. I heard at one time when, when I, I talked to Iranians that have gotten away from there, I said, oh, yeah, remember that. I said, they turn it into a museum now, not a prison. Yeah. Figures. Now it's, oh, yeah, let's, let's go back and see wax figures of people getting, wa- you know, whacked. Yeah. And you know, hung upside down and beaten. Oh, God. And uh, where, where did they take you from the prison? They took me back to the embassy. Wow. They said, well, where are we going? He said, we're going back to the embassy. The embassy, he said, here's what happened. And he said, the Fedayeen on a march uh, with help of other agencies, per se, uh, anti-American, mostly being Russians and everything else, they assaulted the embassy and, you know, took it over. Uh, no Americans were hurt or injured except you. He said, uh, a couple dozen of them were shot and killed. And he says, we won't talk about that, Ken. Don't ever admit that. I said, okay. And he says, you'll be briefed. They said, ambassador's fine. Everybody's fine. He said, once they realized, once community realized that, um, you know, these, this was happening and at the embassy called out for, you know, uh, assistance and help, uh, community sent troops in there to uh, take it back over. There was a short firefight between the, the assaulters and community's people. But they said, look, some, something to be effective. Kamini says, I can put a million men around that thing, and uh, we'll, we will kill every motherfucker in there, uh, talking about the assaulters. Yeah. So get out of there now. And they basically uh, put the, the embassy um, under uh, Kamini's revolutionary guard. Nobody was allowed to go out of the rooms. They were basically held semi-hostage with you know, no way to defend themselves, but they weren't being you know beat up, locked up, or shot up or anything. They take you and, up to Ramstein then? They took me in, and uh, they had the medical people look at me and clean my wound, uh, restitch some what they could. Uh, they fixed me up as best as they could, uh, but I was ordered to be. I was ordered to be taken to the airport the next day and evacuated out, and they did that. Just a vehicle for me, and took me to the airport. And now I got pictures of that too. I got photographs that are in the newspaper, and these are from the Kayan and the Tehran Journal, their own fucking newspapers. Wow. Okay. 
and said that, you know, he is now, he, you know, he was turned over to the Swiss, uh, the Swiss Red Cross, not to the Americans. They turned, they turned me over to the Swiss Red Cross. Red Cross turned me over to the Americans, which is, you know, protocol bullshit. Right, right. So it makes them look, you know, like they helped me out or they were doing something humanitarian for me, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Hey, tell me, tell me about um, when I guess you went to Ramstein, you got treated, you came home. Tell me about that moment when you were, because uh, I, I asked this because I seen a picture in, uh, uh, on, online. Oh, I went to Germany, got picked, got, went to Germany, flew out to Germany. Now, wait, wait, we, we were put on this plane with a bunch of other civilians. Well, hold on a second. Tell me about when they, when they reunited you with your mom. Oh my God. It was, it was um, unbelievable. Uh, on the plane coming in uh, to uh, Andrews Air Force Base, it was a C-141 military jet, and they, uh, I remember the air traffic controllers wanted to talk to me, and they took me up to the cockpit, and he says, <laughs> welcome to home, Sergeant. You are now in American airspace. Thank you for your service. And I just started crying in the, in the cockpit, and then we had a handler there that uh, some captain that said, okay, here's what's going to happen. As we landed Andrews, I said, what are you talking about? You didn't realize you've been around the world. He said, you were missing and you almost started a fucking war. Yeah. And I said, what are you talking about? And uh, he told me, well, you know, and I said, I sat there for about the next half hour as the plane landed. And he landed. He says, no, he says, uh, don't stress yourself because, you know, you don't want to bust your stitches. I know you're going to walk funny because your, your toes fucking broke and, you know, you're, you're, you got a fracture in your tailbone and we, you know all that. So he just walked down. Your family's going to be down there. Your family, uh, Senator John Hines from Pennsylvania, he'll be there. And uh, he says, uh, just go down and greet your mom. He says, you have to, uh, they have some uh, accommodations for you. He said, the Commandant, the Navy, uh, uh, Graham Clater, the uh, Secretary of Navy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I said, you're shitting me. No. And, uh, you know, they opened the doors and, you know, they played the, the Marines, I uh, and I staff, the, uh, the president's own, it was in mm-hmm. the red cloaks. They played for me, and as I walked down the uh, the ramp right there, the uh, Marine Guard uh, gave me a full salute uh, with rifle salute. And it, if it's if it's ceremonial and not war driven, war driven, they don't have the bayonet. You'll see them sometimes that they'll have. You know, and the difference is that you get a military salute for a combat veteran when they salute with the bayonet attached. Right. I got down to the bottom of that, that step, and my mom ran over to me, and I just grabbed her. And all I could do is lift up a little bit like a bear hug because it hurt so fucking bad. It yeah. my tailbone. I thought somebody was driving a hot, hot fucking rod up my ass. And, and the stomach muscles were just, oh, my God, I couldn't hold her. And, yeah, uh, yeah it, was, uh, it was incredible. Wow. But uh, the first point is that, you know, we flew out uh, when they got on a motherfucking plane and they told me that you were under a fatwa. You were under a death sentence in Iran. They said, mm. do not ever come back here. I said, any Iranian, anybody that has a, a mullah's agreement can take your life. So that's why I went and got, you know, I, I got a concealed carry permit. And probably what kept me into going into a police work and, you know, federal work. And I was yeah. always going to have a fucking gun no matter what. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I'm a trophy. You, you, you want to kill me and, you know, assassinate me. You know, I'm an ex-Marine commando. I've killed the fucking shot Iranians. I'm a hero coming home decorated. I'm a police officer. You know, uh, yeah, fuck, you know, I'm, I'm a fucking trophy for killing me or shooting, yeah. go, drive by shooting my family up. You know, when you first told me the story, we were down in Tennessee at the NFA. Um, you know, we talked about it. We didn't go into this much detail, obviously, but 
the one thing, uh, I mean, holy shit, the whole thing is just unbelievable. I mean, what happened? But the, the last part that you just told me with the air traffic controller speaking to you. Yeah, wow. isn't that amazing? Yeah. And he was, he was a New Yorker because I remember his uh, – his uh, his accent from New York, you know, because I'm, I'm yeah. I was born in uh, North Jersey, so you know I recognize it right away. Sure, and, you know, yeah, and wow, so, yeah. Rocky said, he said, "Thank you for your service." And he said, "We'll, we'll park it. We'll park it. We'll park that plane wherever you want it." <laughs> wow. And, uh, so listen, when you got out, man, you uh, you know, one of the things I told everybody in the intro was, you know, when you hear this story about what happened to him in, in, in Iran, it's one thing. I mean, it's a big thing. It's friggin' unbelievable. But what the other thing I told him is, you know, everything you did after that has been a life of service, whether it's the service of the American people in the Marine Corps, the Department of Energy, or the people of Roswell. I mean, you everything you've done professionally has been about public service. And man, that, that's just one of the coolest things about you as a person. I mean, what you went through to put yourself back again in harm's way uh, on, on American soil as a police officer or potentially, uh, you know, man, that, that, that says a lot about a human being. It really does. It, it's pretty amazing. What made you want to go get into police work after, after doing everything? You know what? It's, I, wanted to, I, I don't know if I could ever pay it forward, but I wanted to pay it back. And yeah. it's... Mm. It's a matter of, I want to thank God for the miracle of th what I went through. And that I remember looking at the faces of those 22 non-combatants. And when they were looking at me before we made a de de the decision and the deal to surrender, I'm looking at them and they're so pitiful. Their life is, was in my hands, literally. Yeah. Yeah. My decision, what came of it was in my hands. And I said, oh my God, that was, uh, that was too much. Yeah. And I said, uh, I promised God, no matter what the price was, I said, if you could get get me, get them off my back, get them out of here, I'll do anything you say, anything you want, make a deal. Yeah. I mean, I'll change, I'll be anything you want. But I said, to me, even if they get out alive and, and they slaughter me, I mean, I, I expected that anyway. I mean, I, I, we were down next to nothing for ammo, you know, and less than 30 rounds each for a pistol. And then it was uh, a, a knife, you know, it's cold steel. Hand to hand, TQB baby. And you made the decision: if I can ever get out of here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, right. I'm gonna do so. When I came back service. here, um, and we had a debriefing with uh, again all the al alphabet agencies you could think of. Everybody wanted to know what, and who, and when, and where, and how, and why. I've had a really we lived that fucking thing a dozen times in the next, you know, two months, and um, it really got political because that was the year Jimmy Carter was running for re-election and uh, Ted Kennedy was going to thinking about very seriously splitting the democratic ticket running against them. Sure. I remember so that. they wanted to get the, the most amount of uh, political mileage that they could out of me. So mm -hmm. not so much mm -hmm. that I'm a hero. It's just, that was an opportunity that the more accolades you threw on me with you standing there, you know, shaking my hand, like, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know but as long as uh, you say this, it, it was a service thing. And I, I enjoy back in the, uh, the 80s and the 90s, uh, doing something that protected my country. It makes you feel really important the whole time. Because if yeah. you don't, you just go into a normal job. I was literally afraid that there'd be a void there, you know, that I couldn't, you know, that's refill. One, yeah, that's one of the things you see with a lot of guys coming home. You know, that transition is difficult. 
um, they're run, they used to run at a different speed, a different altitude. And then they come back here and it's okay. You're going to go work at such and such an office. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. You're dead right, Howie. Let me tell you something. It's, it's people like you and it's people like everything else I talk to in this. I'm not the hero. I don't see myself a hero. You can't make yourself a hero. Mm-hmm. Okay. The only, a hero is something that somebody is to somebody else. You save them. You say you save their broken heart. You save their wallet. You save their business. You save their life. You save their dog's life, their kid's life. You do something that's important to them. They announce you as a hero. You that filter you can't put there. Okay, you just do what you need to do. You think anybody goes to goes to battle combat? I don't care how big of balls you got. Navy SEALs, Green Beret, Marine Recon. You pick it, man. You think they go there looking to get a Purple Heart or to walk in there thinking, oh, I want to jump on a grenade and save people's lives? Right. Well, I would think, hope not, that you know, you're know you not too fucking mentally stable right there. You don't go yeah. looking for that goddamn shit. You really don't. No. You know? But when it gets pinned on you later, and you like, still don't feel like a hero, but you get it, and then the books come. And I've been in several books, and, and uh, writing a book myself now, uh, several movies that, they, that, that they've had. You know, I'm, referenced, I'm referenced places. I've been paid to be technical advisor. You know? And uh, you look at that and you say, you know, you just did it because you did it. You've been a police officer. You know what it's like. Do you just say, no, this needs to be done? As much as a firefighter says, everybody's running out of that goddamn building, the rats, the cockroaches, I'm the only crazy motherfucker running in to see if there's anybody still there. You just yeah. fucking do it. And yeah, yeah, you don't do it with bravery. Your balls are you know, up around your throat, but you remember your training, you focus, you breathe, you get the job done. Then afterwards, you, you shit and piss on yourself, and you, you say, I need a strong drink. But it's everybody else around you that you saved or did something that they couldn't imagine. They're the ones that pin the word hero on you or mm-hmm. a thank you and yeah. give you a hug or, or a fist bump. They're the yeah. ones that do it. You can't make it yourself a hero. No, so I'm only can't. a hero from the point of view of what people perceive. And as long as they perceive the facts, what's real, and that's what they don't consider it, then I'll be humble enough to accept it. But yeah. Well, let me tell you something, man. I mean, I, I look at everything that you've done, I mean, from your entire career and that incident you just described especially uh uh i'm i'm not shy about saying you're 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 a hero i mean i, I know you enough now you know I, I feel comfortable saying it. i know what you did i know what you went through and you know i've met some pretty impressive people in my life and i gotta be honest with you man you're right at the top of that list you may <laughs> you may be right at the top of the list because uh some of the decisions you made under duress and while facing death uh, in, in up to an, you know, not just the firefight part of it, but the decision to say, no, you know, I'm not giving in. I'm not going to give in. You took an oath as a United States Marine and right to the very, right to the very last moment in their captivity, you, you, you held your ground. And that is something you don't, you can train people to be Marines, but there's also some other things inside people that you don't train and it's integrity and it's, uh, it's honor. And, um, you got it, brother. I mean, you really do. I, I want to really thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on this podcast and sharing this story with people because it is it is just mind blowing. And uh, I got to be honest with you, man. I'm I'm truly honored to call you my friend. So thank you, man. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure, sir. It's and like I tell everybody, sees my my hat and my, my shirt that I wear with the purple heart that my my friends and family bought me. And it says, thank you for your service. Thank any vet for your service. 
in their heart, they're saying it's a privilege and an honor to have been in that position to do that. And um, I thank you for giving me a chance to get this out to other people. And anything that motivates people to want to do this in the future only makes a better person out of them and probably a better uh, person for their community and definitely a better place on the planet Earth. There yeah, can't be man. enough of people like you and I, Howie, that have seen it, done it, answered the call, okay, and still trying to get information out as long as we can. I don't want to take anything to my grave where I could have passed it on to other people or motivated one other person to do something good. That's it's, great. Uh, I, 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 I couldn't have said that better myself, man. I mean, I, I really, it's awesome. Thanks, brother. A pleasure, sir. Let's get together sometime. I want to see you.